There were Jack Benny and Mary Livingston, George Burns and Gracie Allen, Jim and Marion Jordan, husband and wife couples that went through vaudeville and into radio comedy. Also, Fred Allen and Portland Hoffa Allen, who just went by Portland Hoffa on the air. Fred and Portland had been married for 10 years by 1932 when they began their long-running series. Like Jack and Mary, their marriage wasn't part of the show. Portland played a kind of an ingenue to Alan's straight man, more sophisticated straight man, if that's the word to use. Their show was uh, keyed to the events of the day, which makes for references that don't always work today. But the pace and ad-libs do keep it lively. With guest Martha Ray, this is the Fred Allen Show from November 4th, 1945. It isn't Mildred's Pierce, kiddies. <laughs> the makers of Tenderleaf Tea and Blue Bonnet Margarine present The Fred Allen Show with Fred's guests Martha Ray, Portland Hoffer, Minerva Pius as Mrs. Nussbaum, the Tenderleaf Workshop Players, the DeMarco Sisters, and Al Goodman and his orchestra. And if you're wondering who I am, my name is Kenny Delmar. Ladies and gentlemen, this is National Radio Week. To observe the occasion auspiciously, we wanted to bring you a radio big shot. But all we could get was a blank. And here he is, Brad Allen. Thank you, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, Kenny, this week radio celebrates its 25th year of broadcasting. Think of that, 25 years and still in its infancy. <laughs> you know, the first radio program I heard was from Pittsburgh station KDKA way back in 1920. Uh, how, how was the first broadcast, Fred? Oh, it was quite exciting, Kenny. The announcer came on and said, this is Pittsburgh. The next thing I knew, cinders started flying out of my crystal set. Smoke came pouring out of the earphones. The coil turned into a hot coal. The wires melted down and spelled out John L. Lewis on the floor. Well, in 1920, radio must have been a lot different, too. Oh, all of the programs were new then, Kenny. Mr. District Attorney was still going to law school back in those days. The National Bond Dance was just one rube doing a hoedown in a silo. Bulldog Drummond was just part of a litter back in 1920. <laughs> and radio had yet to hear those two famous words... Mr. Allen! Well, pardon. <laughs> Say, you, uh, you got a lot of applause tonight. My aunt with the big hands is here. Your aunt with the big hands, huh? Well, tell me... <laughs> tell me, Portland, are you... We probably use it the way things start off. Tell me, Portland, are you, are you celebrating National Radio Week? No. Mama and I are celebrating the end of shoe rationing. Oh, good, good. Mama says now that song will be back on the hip parade again. What song? Shoe, shoe, baby. <laughs> You should spray that joke with DDT, Portland. <laughs> it's lying there, but it isn't quite dead yet. 
Say, how can you buy shoes today? Aren't the stores crowded? Oh, it's awful. My salesman had four women's feet in his hands at once. Say, that beats a full house, four feet. <laughs> so he must have been terribly mixed up. Oh, he was. When I left the shoe store, yes. on one foot, I was wearing a wedgie. And on your other foot? I had a sneaker. A wedgie and a sneaker, huh? <laughs> With one leg longer than the other, how did you ever get home? I walked along Fifth Avenue with one foot in the gutter. Oh, that's fine. I hope you didn't step on anybody we know. <laughs> and speaking of stepping, we'd better start stepping down to Allen's Alley, Portland. What is your question tonight? Well, I was going to use that one we heard earlier in the evening about the man who was sitting in Mildred's Piers, but I changed my mind. You know, this week, the $11 billion victory loan drive started throughout the country. And since the government is asking all of us to buy more bonds, Portland, our question is, are you doing your part in the victory loan drive? Shall we go? As one little doggy said to the other little doggy, let's get along. Gosh, it's good to be back in Allen's Alley again, isn't it, Portland? Now, I wonder if the senator is in. Somebody, I say, somebody not. Now, look, Senator. Claghorn's the name. Senator Claghorn, that I, is. I know I it. represent the South. I'm from Dixie. That's down South. Well, you keep telling me yeah, the same. let me talk, son. Well, all I'm trying... Let me get a word in. A word, you understand? That's all I know. Yeah, I know. you keep running off at the mouth, son. I haven't even... Yadda-da, 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 that is. <laughs> Look, Senator, what is Washington doing about the victory loan drive? Well, I say, Congress is all excited. Senator Ball is bouncing. Fine. <laughs> I said Ball is bouncing. That's a joke, son. Well, I suspect it. You ain't very humorous, son. Well, I do the best I can. They keep getting by you. Well, I do the best I can to stop them, Senator. <laughs> but they're so sticky, I don't like to touch them. <laughs> Tell me, Senator, are you... Be- now, Makes a lot of pauses in there. We have uh, any pauses left over. We could use the short ones, you know, for station identification. Tell me, Senator, are you behind this victory loan? I overdone it, son. I can't go back home. You can't go south? I told my constituents to buy bonds. Buy victory bonds, I said. I see. Our army has won the war, I said. Good. Our army is coming home victorious, I said. Well, why can't you go back down south, Senator? They, I think. They thought I meant the Confederate Army. Oh. <laughs> so long, so long, that is. So long, I... Say, a piece of corn pone fell out of the senator's pocket here. Oh, oh well, I'll give it to him next Sunday. Well, let's move along to Titus Moody's door. Howdy, bub. Say, uh... <laughs> Mr. Moody, you look a little tired tonight. Yeah, my Sears Roebuck catalog come yesterday. I was up all night reading it. You couldn't uh, couldn't put it down, eh? Couldn't wait to see how the story come out. <laughs> Gosh, well, uh, uh, Mr. Moody, I know you're doing your part in the victory loan drive. Yeah, I bought $500 worth of bonds. You put them in the bank? I buried them in my backyard. You hid your money in the ground? Why? Well, a fellow he told me, he says, you can't take it with you. And you? I thought I'd try it. (laughs) 
Well, burying your money sounds like a good idea. Not so good, Bob. What happened? Gophers. <laughs> gophers, eh? They dug down where I had my money buried. You mean the gophers ate up all of your bonds? Couldn't tell my $500 from a hole in the ground. Hold on, Bob. Mr. Moody's going to have a hard time trying to spend those occupation gophers. Well, I'll try this next house. No? Well, Mrs. Nussbaum, I'm sure you're doing your bit in the victory loan drive. I'm auctioning off my furniture. Really? My goal is $100 bonds. What, uh, what furniture did you put up? First, my coffee table. Uh-huh. For $12, it is going, going, gone. Twelve dollars for a coffee table, huh? Oh, it's a genuine Sippendale. Oh, Sippendale. <laughs> fine, fine. Next, for fifty dollars is going my pickle pine lobster. Pickle pine lobster. <laughs> another, another valuable piece? A Duncan Feinstein. Duncan <laughs> I see. Then it's going job lot. Teapots, high boys, low boys, assorted bracket <laughs> Most of your things were gone, huh? Like old Mother Hubbard, my cupboard is bare. She'll pardon the expression. Yes. <laughs> but you uh, you made your $100 goal? I am $3 short. Well, how did you raise the last $3? In the kitchen, I'm finding two chairs. Two chairs? Mine rocking chair and mine husband Pierre's modest chair. And you, uh... I am selling Pierre's chair... Eureka, I'm making mine go. Well, if you sold your husband's chair, what is he sitting on now? But he's always sitting on, silly Billy. <laughs> well, here we are. Here we are at the last house in the alley. I'll see if anyone's home here. Oh, it's you, the pest again. Ah, McGee and McGee. I'll bet you boys have written some new songs this week. You bet. Have you heard? It's watermelon time in Waterbury, baby, so I can't elope with you. Now, wait a minute. Now, look. <laughs> I just stopped by to say I'm checking to see if everybody is behind the victory loan drive. Great. We just wrote a new victory bond song. Victory bond song? How does it go? It's him. And now that McGee and McGee have torn their tune apart, we bring you five little girls who will put one together for you. The DeMarco sisters, accompanied by Maestro Al Goodman and his atonic orchestra, now sing Bell Bottom Trousers. Sailor, and he loved her too. One fair, 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 one fair,
Kenny, with a word to the wives. You can trust Her Majesty, the American housewife, to be practical every time. She wants finer tea in its most convenient form. So she buys Tenderleaf brand tea balls. They outsell all other kinds in America because they're better in every way. Easy to handle, more convenient, more gracious. Above all, they make finer tea. Because the tea leaves inside the individual packets is famous for flavor Tenderleaf brand tea. Always supremely delicious. And the packets are made of tasteless filter paper. A vast improvement that filters your tea as it's being made. It comes out clear and sparkling, unmarred by speck. There's nothing but tea goodness in your cup. And tea goodness means quick comfort when you need it most. When you want the quick comfort of a bracing cup of delicious tender leaf tea, just drop a tender leaf tea ball in your cup, add boiling water, and it's ready. So for every good reason, ask your grocer for tender leaf brand tea ball. Maestro Al Goodman has just presented a Reader's Digest version of that popular song, If I Loved You. And now, say, Portland, will you hand me my pitch pipe over there on the floor, please? Uh Uh-huh. Is this it? Yes, thank you. Any bongs today? Any bongs today? Uh, What are you doing, Mr. Allen? What does it sound as though I'm doing? Any bonds today? Bonds of freedom? Yeah. <laughs> well, you can laugh. Let me tell you, the Treasury Department, Treasury Department, all the dealings I've had with them and can't pronounce the name. <laughs> Heard me singing with Frank Sinatra last week. The Treasury Department? Uh-huh. You know, Barry Wood did all of the singing in the last bond drive. Well, the Treasury Department wants me to sing for the victory loan. Why, I may be another Lucy Monroe before I'm through. Any bonds today? Bonds on... Mr. Allen, if you sing like that, you'll get $11 billion thrown at you. $11 billion in pennies is still $11 billion, Portland. I'm singing on the Staten Island Ferry tomorrow at 11 o'clock. If the wind is right, they'll hear me all over Jersey. <laughs> they think they have flats in Jersey. Wait till they hear me in the morning. Who is our guest tonight? Guest? Guest? Oh, I knew I had forgotten something, Portland. You know, I've been so busy. Yesterday, I had to go down to the song publishers to get a copy of any bonds today. Well, I got there early and nobody was around. I thought I'd wait in one of the rehearsal rooms. So I opened the door... And there was a quiet-looking young girl sitting there studying some lyrics. I passed by a window, I think was the name of the song. And as I come in, as I came in, she looked up and said softly, Hiya, Faye, oh boy, oh boy, Faye, hiya, Faye. Say, 
I, uh, I didn't mean to barge in on you, Martha. I'm sorry. Oh, forget it. Slap the carcass down over here. Uh, at my age, Martha, one does not slap the carcass. One lowers it gently. <laughs> well, lower it gently, Fred. The creaking won't bother me. You sure? <laughs> you sure? <laughs> you come across an occasional one as we go along. But Martha... Martha, you seem depressed. You look as though you had lost a friend. Fred, I just lost a million friends. What happened? The fleet left town. Now, don't tell me your boyfriend was the Romeo of the Big Mo. Oh, he was the cutest little sailor, Fred. A little sailor? Uh, he was so small, his dog tag was a Pekingese. Would you like to run over that again? Now, there's some stuff. It may be with us. I'm not sure. So small, he's a, a sort of a sample sailor. Was he romantic in a miniature way? Romantic? When I smiled? Yes. He said it was like a landing barge opening up. <laughs> well, as long as you've missed your sailor friend, Martha, how about going out with me? Are you kidding? Well, you know the old Navy saying, any old port in a storm. It ain't that stormy, Fred. <laughs> Martha, there are people, believe it or not, who think that I am not unpretty. Fred, at carnivals, I have thrown baseballs at better-looking faces. <laughs> Martha, for your information, I have my own hair, I have my own teeth. No other radio comedian can make that statement. <laughs> so what do you say, uh, what do you say, Martha? Let's go jitterbugging. You a jitterbug, Fred? Are you too old to jit? Uh, <laughs> a man is never too old to jit, Martha. I read about a jitterbug who was 97 years of age. The day he was buried, a voice was heard coming from within his coffin. What did the voice say? Dig me, brother, dig me. <laughs> well, Martha, I have to run along. I've got to learn my song. Well, I have to rehearse my song, too. Really? I'm opening at the carnival room in a couple of weeks. Say, as long as you're going to be in town, how about coming on my program some Sunday? Oh, I'm through with comedy, Fred. I'm going in for drama. You, a dramatic actress? Fred, while I was playing overseas for the USO... I learned that soldiers aren't looking for comedy in a woman. Well, I know that, Martha. And what they're looking for, you are not going to find a Noel Coward, either. <laughs> Won't Hollywood give you a chance to do it? <laughs> we could have used some of that on two of those other jokes. We... <laughs> Won't Hollywood uh, give you a chance to do a dramatic picture? Hollywood? Ten years in Hollywood, and what have I got to show for it? 200 sweaters and Sonny Tufts autographs. Sonny Tufts? Gad, they've taught him to write. <laughs> Paramount did it again. Oh, if I just had a chance to show my dramatic ability. Say, I just remembered, Martha. It so happens that I have a play. A drama? Gosh, Fred. Now, if you have a little time. Uh, just a minute, Fred. The band is waiting to rehearse my number. Uh -huh. I'll be right back. Okay, boys. <laughs> Tampico, on the go for Mexico. Tampico, Tampico, that's the place to go. Tampico, Tampico, where banana boats all go. Tampico, Tampico, down in Mexico. Now when you're making the round, let me give you a tip. Don't think the ladies are square. They're very, very hip. Oh, Tampico. 
Mexico, San Diego, on the Gulf of Mexico, San Diego, San Diego. Well, Martha. Oh, thanks, Fred. Hey, now, what about your play? Is it a dramic? Dramatic? Uh, Pardon uh, me, it's, a dramic. it's a dramic. It's a dramic. It's a dramic with some tender leaf tea in there. Which... <laughs> it's a sequel to that. <laughs> it's a sequel. Let's read between the lines. I think we'll do that. I think it's a, it's a sequel to that new picture, Love Letters, Martha. Love Letters, that big hit Jennifer Jones and Joseph Cotton are starting? Yes, Love Letters, but my play is called Mash Note. <laughs> you are a girl like Jennifer Jones. You have lost your memory. And the way I play Joseph Cotton, you'll think a bold weevil has just gotten through it. Let's go, Fred. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, presenting the premiere performance of America's newest dramatic star, Miss Martha Ray... In national. I am Bennington. That is my name. I cannot remember my name. I cannot remember anything. The reason I cannot remember anything is because I have lost my memory. I remember only one word out of my forgotten past. One word keeps echoing through my mind. Oh, is that one word? Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. 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 That word was the only link to my past. One day my empty life was brightened. I met him. Yes, Bennington met me. I am Lord Neville Buff Puffington. Keeper of the Privy Seal. Alto Pfeiffer in His Majesty's Warm Stream Guards. At the last election, given the boot with Winston Churchill. Yes, it was I who won the art of Bennington. But I shall start at the beginning. It was at the beginning it all started, obviously. It was Michaelmas Eve at Lady Cavendish's Fish and Chip Fry. Music was played. It was a social event of the season. A group of us young dandies had gathered. I was standing by the obstacle. I was about to give it a bit of a tweak when I heard a chap say... I say, here comes Lady Cavendish, but you went out with her niece. Oh, gentlemen. How do you do? To do. To do. To do. To do. 
This is my niece, Bennington. Bennington, you may remain and regale Lord Doc Tappington. Yes, my lady. Come, gentlemen. We're having such beastly fun in the castle room. We're pulling them. Oh, <laughs> I say, Bennington. Yes, my lord? We buff Puffingtons never beat about the bush, you know. Yes, my lord? If we have something to say, we jolly well out with it. Tippity-poo and all that sort of rot, you know. Yes, my lord? Bennington, will you marry me? Yes, my lord? Congratulations, old girl. Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you. I was to be Lady Buff Puffington. He didn't know my mind was a blank. Only one word tied me to my forgotten past. Always the same word. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid, Megatroid. Megatroid. And so we were married. It wasn't long before I sensed that something was wrong with Bennington. She was incessantly forgetting. Forever she seemed to be saying... I can't remember. When I would say, Bennington, I'm off for a bit of croquet. Where are me wickets? I can't remember. Bennington, I'm going frogging tonight. Where is my frog net with the short handle? I can't remember. Finally, it dawned on me. My wife had lost her memory. I sent for England's greatest psychiatrist, Sir Proctor Prendable Bar. The psychiatrist said... Your wife has suffered a great shock. Really? It caused her to lose her memory. Shock, you say? She must have witnessed some terrible scene. Terrible scene. Someone in agony. Agony. Someone tortured. There is only one clue. One clue, you mean? The name Murgatroyd. Anything else, doctor? Yes, that would be two pounds. Thank you. Murgatroyd, the only clue. I called on the police. To the four corners of the earth, they cabled that name. Murgatroyd, 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 Murgatroyd. Murgatroyd. Then success. Scotland Yard found the solution. Bit by bit, they pieced together my wife's tragic past. At last I knew. I summoned her. Bennington. I say, Bennington. Who are you? I am your mate, Lord Buff Puffington. I can't remember. Your memory will soon come back, old girl. Listen closely. You recall Murgatroyd? Murgatroyd? Murgatroyd. <laughs> An accountant at Hollywood, California, in the colonies when you were there. My memory. It's coming back. Murgatroyd. I worked for him. Right. Then one day in March, one of Murgatroyd's clients came into his accountant's office, remember? Stop, stop. Don't bring that horrible picture to my mind again. No, no, no. There in Murgatroyd's office, you saw the sight that drove you out of your mind. No, no, no. You witnessed a man going through the agonies worse than death. A scene of self-torture and suffering no other mortal could possibly witness without breaking. No, no, no. Yes, Bennington. You saw Jack Benny paying his income tax.
as a parting reminder. A suggestion about something good to eat makes us all take notice. So here's one for the book. Remember the letters F and E for flavor, nutrition, economy. Blue Bonnet Margarine gives all three flavor, nutrition, economy. Yes, when you buy Blue Bonnet Margarine, ladies, you get three important things. You get flavor, delicious flavor. The fussiest eater in your family will go for Blue Bonnet. It's so fresh, delicate tasting, country sweet. You get nutrition, proved nutrition. Delicious Blue Bonnet is packed with food energy, rich in vitamin A, too. And Blue Bonnet means economy. This fresh, tempting spread saves you real money. Why, it costs so little, you can spread it on twice as thick. And remember, Blue Bonnet Margarine is a product of the makers of Fleischmann's yeast. Back of every pound stands the Fleischmann reputation for top-quality food. You can buy Blue Bonnet with confidence and eat it with real delight. So ask your grocer for Blue Bonnet tomorrow. It's the margarine that gives you flavor, nutrition, economy. All three. Thank you, Kenny. Before we stack up the tender-leaf tea bags and put away the blue bonnet margarine for the evening, I want to thank Martha Ray for joining us tonight. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, next Sunday night, the Fred Allen Show brings you comedy. <laughs> Drama. Joe, Joe, don't take my life. Okay, I'll take your Esquire instead. And our guest will be... Monty Woolley. One follower of Fred Allen was Johnny Carson, who occasionally on TV's Tonight Show did a spin-off of Allen's Alley. Portland Hoffa, by the way, was named after the city of her birth, Portland, Oregon, as were some of her siblings, her sister Lebanon and brother Harlem. Fred wrote an autobiography called Treadmill to Oblivion. Up next, the Screen Guild Theater, here on Skywave Audio Theater. In the 1930s and 40s, there was a kind of a trend for stories about city dwellers roughing it in the country. Most famously, there was The Egg and I. There was also George Washington Slept Here. It was a play by Moss Hart and George S. Kaufman, made into a Jack Benny Ann Sheridan film in 1942. A year later, Jack Carson and Carol Landis played a couple with conflicting ideas of good living, redoing that story for radio. You're going to hear Carson get a laugh out of a reference to the famous thoroughbred Seabiscuit who ran against Bing Crosby's horse, Lingarati, and won, despite a lot of fouling from Lingarati's jockey. Not sure what Bing Crosby thought about that. From Screen Guild Theater of November 8, 1943, this is George Washington Slept Here. Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild Players. The Screen Guild play tonight, George Washington Slept Here. The starring players... This is Jack Carson. And this is Carol Landis.
Tonight, Lady Esther presents the Screen Guild players in a radio adaptation of Warner Brothers' rollicking comedy, George Washington Slept Here, by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart. It stars Jack Carson as Bill Fuller and Carol Landis as his wife, Connie. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players in George Washington Slept Here. Miles from the city. Isn't it wonderful? No noise, no smoke. Well, I like this city. I even like smoke. Smoke makes a city seem so lived in. Oh, just smell that air. Smells like a damp dog. No, Bill, look. That's our new house. Our new house? Connie, are you telling me that that moth-eaten, termite-ridden pile of rotten boards is our house? You mean without saying a word, you've taken our hard-earned money and bought that... that rabbit hutch? Oh, Bill. Connie, I think you've lost your mind. Ah, Bill, you're going to love this. It's hundreds of years old. Think of it, darling. George Washington actually slept in this very house. Yeah? With all those cracks in the walls, it's a wonder the wind didn't blow him out of bed. Ah, and look at this living room. 200 years ago, it was full of colonial soldiers. If only these walls could talk. Well, I can, and I want to go back to town. Oh, uh, oh, hello, Mr. Kemper. Uh, this is my husband. Uh, howdy. I've been showing him through the house. Be careful of upstairs floors, ma'am. One of them caved in last month. Just up and gave away. <laughs> well, Mr. Kemper is the caretaker. I see. Uh, have, uh, have you been here 200 years, too, Mr. Kemper? Uh, let's see now. I came here in, uh... No, no, it was, uh... No. Yeah... No, I haven't. <laughs> Come along, Bill. Upstairs is the bedroom George Washington slept in just before going to Yorktown. Can't you just buy me a book on American history and let me read it on West 27th Street? Right now I'm hot and thirsty. Oh, Bill, I believe you're really angry. Angry? I could spit from here to Mount Vernon. <laughs> Look at this goat's nest. Looks like half the battles of the Revolution were fought down there in the living room. Uh, just wait till you see this place a month from now. We're going to remodel the whole thing, and Mr. Kimber is going to superintend it. I'm thirsty. I want a drink of water. Oh, uh, Mr. Kimber. Uh, yes, Miss Fuller. Where's the water faucet? Mr. Fuller wants a drink. Uh, no faucets in the house, ma'am. Isn't there any water at all anywhere? Well, there's the brook. Well, who's going to drink brook water? Fished you right good on it. I can understand that. This is a great spot for suckers. Look, <laughs> Mr. Kimber, couldn't we just... Couldn't we just dig a well and find water? Nothing to stop you doing that. Only takes 30 to 60 days. Oh, goody. I'll just put the drink off a month or two. <laughs> <laughs> I really wasn't thirsty anyhow. <laughs> the fine thing, a guy's either got to be a fish and drink in the brook or a camel and never touch the stuff. <laughs> I think... Oh, oh, oh! Oh, Bill, look. Shame on you. You fell right through the ceiling. Huh? Just up and gave away, didn't she? Are you hot, Mr. Fuller? No, no, I loved it. George Washington slept here. I know now what drove him to Valley Forge. Firing line is less dangerous than this seven-room booby trap. Your name, Fuller? That's right. My name is Prescott. I own the house next door. 
This road you're using to drive up to your house is my road. Your road? There must be some mistake. You see, I, I, I own this house. My wife and I just bought it. Did you buy the road? Well, no, of course not. But don't roads usually go with houses? Not this road, Mr. Fuller. I built this road with my own money, and you, sir, are trespassing. Well, how are we supposed to get to our house? Parachute in? <laughs> how you manage it is no concern of mine. All I can say is you'll have to build your own road. Good day, Mr. Fuller. Who was it, Bill? Our neighbor, Mr. Prescott. Nice guy. Owns roads and things. <laughs> Says the road leading to our property belongs to him and we can't use it. We're trapped. I'm a man without a road. <laughs> but, dear, there's another road to the woods back of the house. Yeah? Maybe we ought to trade our car in for a pack mule and an Indian guide. Now, Bill, I'll check with the real estate agent in the morning. By all means, do. Maybe the house doesn't belong to us either. That'll be the best news I've had all week. Oh, here, Bill. Help me unpack the rest of these cooking utensils. We'll never get dinner if Hester doesn't get the rest of her pots and pans. For the love of Mike, listen to that noise. Is Mr. Kimmer going to be drilling for water all summer? There's so many holes in the backyard now, it looks like an army of gophers were working a swing shift. Well, Mr. Kimber says the new well looks very promising. He thinks we're going to strike it this time. Yeah? He'll strike gold before he strikes water. Bill, help has to get the poor animal out of the kitchen. A horse must be out of its head to walk into a kitchen in times like these. Scram, dog biscuit. Go on back to Crosby. There. <laughs> there you are, Hester. Now, once that wall gets up, it won't happen again. Look, Connie, we've been in this country jail 30 days. No road, wall in the kitchen still out, floors that may turn into trap doors any moment, and even the OPA couldn't put a ceiling on this house. But, Bill, it, it takes a little time to get everything all fixed up. Uh, pardon me, Mr. Spuller, but I ordered the gravel. Going to need another load, too. We figured $42, but the bill says around $135. Price of lime's gone up, too. And there's the trees, you know. Trees? What do we have to do about the trees? Pay them for standing there? No, but you got to spray them, Mr. Fuller. Oh. If we don't, they'll have to get elm blight or oak bar. Mm -hmm. And then there are caterpillars and the measuring worm. Is that all, Mr. Kimber? Well, there's the Japanese beetle. Japanese? Does Mr. Prescott have Japanese beetles? No, just you. You mean all the way from Japan they came to pick on me? Uh, was there anything else, Mr. Kimber? Well, we need a couple of truckloads of fertilizer. It's $45 a load now. Forty-five... You know, when fertilizer costs more than sirloin steak, it makes you stop and think. <laughs> uh, then let's see. Uh, we're going to need six truckloads of dirt. Dirt? Connie, first we got no water, then we got no road, but now a farm and no dirt. That's too much. Bill, sometimes I just don't understand you. Here you are face to face with the most wonderful thing in the world, nature. And all you see are a few insignificant trivialities. That's all very fine. I love it here, Connie. Just us and the insects. But where's the money coming from to pay for all of this? Look at this little note from the county. Extra assessment county poorhouse, $21.30. I suggest we pay that and move right in. Oh, Bill. At least you should feel better now that we have water. Just think, ever since early this morning, 40 gallons a minute. Mr. Fuller. Oh, hello, Mr. Prescott. What can I do for you? Mr. Fuller, you have just put a well down on my property. You're drawing my water. 
You know something, Mr. Prescott? I breathe some of your air today, too. Come on, sue me. Why, Mr. Prescott, See I... See here, Prescott, we put no well down on your property. Don't tell me. Your property ends at the brook. Why don't you look at your deed first instead of having a man go out and dig wells wherever he wants to? You can't go around punching holes in other people's property. Well, even if the well is on your property, couldn't you, well, sort of allow us to use it? Mr. Fuller, this well you put down has tapped my spring. I just tried to fill my bathtub and nothing comes out of the faucets. Maybe it just runs on Saturday. <laughs> there is no water anywhere in my house. You mean... Yes. Oh, no wonder we get 40 gallons to the minute. Well, Mr. Fuller, do you plug it up or do I have my men do it and send you the bill? I'll give you an hour to decide. Look, I'll pull the well out of the ground, saw it up, and stack it right in the middle of your road. Goodbye. <laughs> Mr. Kimber, you've been drilling holes in this backyard long enough. I haven't seen anything but the top of your head for weeks. Don't go down to the mine today, Kimber. Don't. The more I drill, the closer we get to water. Well, please stop for a while. You're beginning to get that cave-dweller look. Yes, sir. But you know the water is looking for us. We're looking for the water. <laughs> Mr. Prescott has probably drained all the water to stay away from this place. Just, just forget it. Mr. Fuller. Oh, hello, Mr. Kimmer. Come right in. I, I suppose the Japanese beetles are coming. Uh, three months too early for them. Oh. Afraid, uh, afraid the new well is no good, Mrs. Fuller. You just struck a cemetery. A cemetery? Anybody we know? <laughs> well, uh, you, you better keep trying, Mr. Kimber. We've got to have water. Look, uh, Kimber. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dig, dig, dig. <laughs> uh, zoot, Mr. Fuller, zoot. <laughs> Connie, Connie, we've got to do something about Raymond. I refuse to have that 12-year-old package of dynamite running around this house any longer. But, Bill, he's my nephew. Besides, Raymond's only been here two weeks, and after all, he's only a small boy. Couldn't you try to get to really know him better? Know him? He bit his initials in my leg, didn't he? He's not the type to know better. The only way he can know that, Brad, is worse. But, Bill, it's just until my sister gets a divorce. That's the only thing that's holding it up now is the custody of Raymond. Hmm. You mean neither one of his parents will take him? Hey, Aunt Connie, here comes that old flat-faced Mr. Prescott. The old jerk looks like he's got a puss on. Oh. Uh, Mr. Fuller, this boy just threw a dead skunk in my swimming pool. I did not. It was a lie. No. And this morning, he put a sign, nudist camp, right in front of my gate. Oh, Raymond, if you don't behave, your Uncle Bill is going to have to do something about you. I know what I'd like to do, but it means the chair in this state. Why, I'd turn my dogs loose on you if you weren't leaving tomorrow. Uh, leaving? But we're not going anywhere, Mr. Prescott. Oh, that's what you think. Mr. Fuller, it may interest you to know that your property is being foreclosed on Tuesday. Foreclosed? Exactly. I'm on the board of directors at the bank. At 12 o'clock Tuesday morning, Mr. Fuller, I'm buying your place. Connie, what does he mean? I, I don't know, Bill. We have the deed. You may have your deed, but you haven't got $5,000. Good day. Well, uh, there was a letter from the bank, Bill, but I didn't want to bother you. Bother me? <laughs> Just a letter of foreclosure, that's all. Oh. We seem to have paid for everything except the house. <laughs> oh, it's all my fault. What are we going to do? 
Sometimes if you write to Mrs. Roosevelt, the darnest things happen. <laughs> you know, Connie, I'm just beginning to like this place. Were you, Bill? Yeah. Were you really? Mm-hmm. Oh, $5,000. It doesn't sound like so much. It does when you haven't got it. Maybe we could hock Raymond for $5,000. <laughs> Act One of George Washington Slept Here, starring Carol Landis and Jack Carson. Before we hear Act Two, a word from our hostess, Lady Esther. I believe there's nothing that can do more to dramatize a woman's appearance than a fresh, lovely skin. For I've seen living proof of it so many times. I remember, for example, a rather plain, mousy little woman I met once at a dinner party. She had such a blemished, unattractive skin that it made her very self-conscious among people. And she begged me to help her, to tell her what to do. Well, I said, millions of women use my four-purpose face cream and seem to find it very helpful. You mean that's all I need, she said, just one cream? She seemed surprised, as though one cream couldn't possibly help her long-neglected skin. Well, I left the party soon after, never expecting to see her again. But I did see her just a few weeks later, and I could hardly believe my eyes. For she had taken my advice, had used Lady Esther face cream morning and night, and she had become positively radiant. Her skin looked so much smoother and fresher that she seemed years younger than when I last saw her. And now that she was no longer self-conscious about her skin, she had acquired new poise, new confidence. It was reflected even in the way she walked and talked. Lady Esther Four-Purpose Face Cream had helped make her a very attractive woman indeed. So why don't you try Lady Esther Face Cream? It thoroughly cleans your skin. It softens your skin. It helps nature refine the pores and it leaves a smooth, perfect base for powder. Millions of lovely women now use no other cream for their skin than Lady Esther Four-Purpose Face Cream. And now the curtain rises on Act Two of George Washington Slept Here, starring Jack Carson as Bill Fuller and Carol Landis as his wife, Connie. to give you this telegram. Only a telegram, Mr. Kimber? No locusts? No worms? No beetles? Oh, oh. Bill! Huh? Guess what? Uncle Stanley is coming. Uncle? When? Now. He must be on his way from the station. Of all the times. Oh, Bill, it'll only be for a couple of days. Oh, sure, just for the weekend. There isn't going to be any weekend, Connie. Don't you remember? We're leaving tomorrow. Uncle Stanley, the old windbag. Well, all I can say is if we ever get his money, we've earned it. Money? Oh, money. Say, that's a wonderful idea. Don't you get a bill? We'll borrow the $5,000 from him. <sighs> that tight old buzzard. Do you realize he's never given us so much as a handkerchief? Just pictures. Pictures of himself. <laughs> now, Bill, that one of the guest room came in very handy. It covered a very bad place in the plaster. <laughs> Tell you, I'm sick of them. Pictures of Uncle Stanley grinning at you in the living room, the dining room, the front hall, why, even the bat everywhere. <laughs> Oh, 
I'd like to find just one peaceful corner in this house where the old goat couldn't leer down at me. Hey, Bill, look out the window. Here he is now. It's Uncle Stanley. The old buzzard. Hello, children. Why, Uncle Stanley. Hello, you old buzzard. <laughs> welcome, welcome. <laughs> Are we glad to see you. Constance, my dear. Hello there, Bill. Oh, Uncle Stanley, you look wonderful. Come in and sit down in this nice easy chair, Uncle Stanley. Make yourself comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, now, let me see. Where's that little package I brought? Oh, yes, yes, there it is. A little something for the house with my compliments. Oh, look, Bill. A picture of Uncle Stanley. <laughs> well, isn't that... Wonderful. <laughs> nice little place you have here, Constance. Yeah, George Washington actually slept here. You should have seen this place before we took it over. You wouldn't have believed anybody could have slept here. This place would have given Robinson Crusoe insomnia. Now, draw your chair closer to the fire, Uncle Stanley. Thank yes, you. here, let me get a cushion for your back, Uncle Stanley. Thank you. Yeah, are you sure you're comfortable, Uncle yes, Stanley? Yes, yes, yes. Ah, well, uh, oh, uh, by the way, Uncle Stanley, uh... There was a fellow in our office, and he had an aunt that was going to leave him a whole lot of money, and uh, this fella got into some trouble or other or something, and, and he, he finally had to go to this aunt and ask her if she'd give him some money. Uh, <laughs> she was a darn fool if she did. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Bill is trying to tell you something, Uncle Stanley. We're going to lose this house if we don't get $5,000 tomorrow. $5,000? Oh, we wouldn't ask if we weren't desperate. You see, we, we, we both felt that if Connie could have just that much of her inheritance now, why... You see, it... Uncle Stanley, this house means so much to both of us. That's all very well, Constance, but people shouldn't go about buying things they can't afford to pay for. Surely, Uncle Stanley, a man of your means... That has nothing to do with it. I'm sorry, Uncle Stanley. It, it was my fault, not Bill's. But $5,000 can't mean very much to you and... It means an awfully lot to us. It's quite a shock to me, Constance. You're the first one in the family that's ever asked for money. As a lesson to you, I'm afraid I've got to say no. Uncle Stanley, I'm not going to let you say no. Please say yes, Uncle Stanley. Bill, Constance, I'm going to tell you something. <clears throat> I haven't got a plug nickel. Not a cent. What? what? I haven't got a cent. Went broke in 1929, clean broke. Oh, you're joking. No, I'm not. <laughs> I just don't get it. Uh, I get $100 a month from an annuity, the only thing I have left. Well, why did you go on fooling everybody all these years? Well, children, I'll tell you. When I found I was broke, I didn't like the idea a bit, so I said to myself, if you don't let your nephews and nieces find out, you can still have a wonderful life just visiting around. It'll be a cinch. This is the dirtiest trick I ever heard of in my life. A professional homesteader. <laughs> Oh, Bill, I'm going to miss this place terribly. Just little things. Walking upstairs to bed at night, putting around the place. Oh, I don't know, the whole feeling that it's yours, inside and out. Yes, sir, a little place in the country. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of the Japanese beetle. <laughs> Say, Bill, I just want you and Constance to know that I'm very sorry I didn't have the money to give you. Oh, that's all right, Uncle Stanley. Don't, don't, don't give it a thought. It doesn't matter now, anyway. I suppose we'll have to give Hester notice. With that kid commando around, she'll probably be glad to retire to a boiler factory. Raymond, come on out in the yard with me. I want to have a talk with you. Okay. Excuse us a minute, children. Mm. Okay, I'm listening. Well, you know that Aunt Connie and Uncle Bill are going to lose their house. Yeah, I heard about it. They aren't losing much when they lose that fire trap. See, now there's an idea. Yeah, but I got an idea how to help them. And I need your assistance. Yeah? What's in it for me? How about five dollars? 
Well, the fire'd be worth that. Make it ten in cash. All right, ten. Now, listen, I want you to get Mr. Prescott over here. Do you think you could do something to make him chase you back here? Do I think? Say it's a cinch. Now, where's the ten bucks? When the job's over, I'll pay you. Now, run along and bring Prescott back. Well, okay. Uh, Raymond, on your way. George Washington may have crossed up the Delaware, but here's where your Uncle Stanley crosses up Mr. Prescott. Uh, where are you going to live, Mr. Fuller? Under a newspaper in Central Park. Look us up. Got a whole wheelbarrow of fertilizer out by the front door. What better do with it? Oh, just leave it there, Mr. Kemper. Maybe Mr. Prescott can take it home for his roses. Well, it's paid for. Seems just a shame Help! not to... Help! He's just behind me! For heaven's sakes, who's just behind oh, you? Mr. Fuller, I've stood all that I'm going to stand. That boy threw mud in my face. Why, Raymond. And all that fertilizer out there are paid for. <laughs> I tell you, if it weren't for the fact that you're leaving tomorrow, I'd have you thrown out now. Mr. Prescott, until tomorrow, this property is ours, and I'll thank you to get off of it. In other words, you've got your road out there. Hit it. It'll be a pleasure. I shall put the matter of personal damages in the hands of my lawyer. I'll see that my dogs escort you out of here personally. Oh, uh, Mr. Fuller, Mr. Fuller, look what I found. We were digging and I brought up this old boot. It had an old letter in it, too. Fell out when we dug it up. An old letter? Who's it addressed to? Let me see. Uh, nobody. It says, notes on a speech to the armed forces. Armed forces? Why, that must be... What, is, what does it say, Bill? Read it. Uh, gentlemen... We are facing a time of peril so grave in our brief national history that there is now only the choice of serving the country a little longer or having tomorrow no country to serve. Under the favor of Almighty God, we have become a nation. Let me say to you that I hate war. But if we remain one nation, one people, that time is not far distant when we may choose war or peace as our national interest, guided by justice. In the words of Tom Paine, these are the times that try men's souls. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. Tis dearness alone that gives everything its value. And it would be strange indeed if so celestial an article as freedom should not be highly rated. George Washington. George Washington? Gosh, uh, what's the date on that? Uh, November 10th, 1777. This document is priceless. It is. Uh, well, think we can get 5000 for it? Ten times that. Why, I know a half a dozen people who would buy it in two minutes. Uh, well, Mr. Prescott. Well, I... Uh, well, what if it isn't genuine? I assure you, Mr. Prescott, it is genuine. This will more than pay the bank back tomorrow. Goodbye, Mr. Prescott. Look out that wheel bar. Uh, 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 there's none left for his roses. <laughs> oh, Mr. Fuller! Mr. Fuller! What? Close the door. They're here. Who's here? The Japanese Beatles. Millions of them. Japanese Beatles? Yeah, what do we do with them, Mr. Fuller? Let General MacArthur take care of them. Come on, Connie. This is the end. <laughs> Uh, 
Thank you, Mr. Carson and Miss Landis, for bringing us the story of George Washington Slept Here. The Lady Esther Screen Guild players are indeed grateful that you could be our guests tonight. Thank you, Mr. Bradley. We're all aware of what fine work is being done by the Motion Picture Relief Fund and Clinic. And to know that the benefits from this program support that work makes our annual appearance of the Lady Esther Screen Guild players a real pleasure. We'll be back soon. And now, before we tell you about next week's program, here's a word from one of America's best-known beauty authorities, Lady Esther. Thank you, Miss Landis. Ladies, can you look in your mirror and say, my skin is just the way I want it to be, smooth, fresh, and youthful-looking? Or are there telltale signs of age around your eyes and mouth? Does your skin seem dry and rough to your fingers? Do you have a tiny blackhead here and there, perhaps a few big pores? Well, you can have the kind of skin you dream about. You can have a radiantly clean, fresh-looking skin that everyone admires. And all you need is just one cream, Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream. Many women say it's the most beautifying face cream they've ever used. All I ask you to do is try Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream. See how the dry flakes of skin are loosened and absorbed. How the very texture of your skin seems suddenly a lot finer and softer. Notice how much smoother face powder looks on your skin after you've removed those dry clinging flakes. Remember, Lady Esther face cream is all you need. For it thoroughly cleans your skin, softens your skin, helps nature refine the pores, and leaves a smooth, perfect base for powder. Many women say their skin looks a lot younger and lovelier <clears throat> after the very first application of Lady Esther Four Purpose Face Cream. week, the Lady Esther Screen Guild players will present Design for Scandal. It will star Olivia de Havilland and Walter Pidgeon. Be sure to listen. Carol Landis is currently working in the 20th Century Fox production, Four Jills in a Jeep. Jack Carson can now be seen in the Warner Brothers production, Princess O'Rourke. And he can also be heard Wednesday evenings on this network in his own Campbell Soup radio program. Music on tonight's program was arranged and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. For economy's sake, get the largest size of Lady Esther four-purpose face cream and the larger sizes of Lady Esther face powder. This is Truman Bradley speaking for Lady Esther, saying thank you and good night. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. Coming a few months after the Jack Benny and Sheridan movie came out, that was Screen Guild Theater with George Washington Slept Here from November 8th, 1943. And it's almost uncanny how much Carol Landis sounded like Claudette Colbert, who was Fred McMurray's co-star in The Egg and I, with a kind of a similar storyline. Nice to have a priceless letter tucked away in your backyard, isn't it? The Rags Riches story was the kind of tale that was particularly popular during the hard times of the Great Depression and still played well during the war years to follow. Around the corner is Nero Wolf. This is Skywave Audio Theater.
If there's anyone whose profession seems to require chronic destitution, it's that of the private detective. Among them, despite his prosperous appearance, is Nero Wolf, a creation of the aptly named Rex Stout. Wolf being a man among orchids and fine food, doesn't claim any ability as a romance counselor, so what's his interest going to be when a lovelorn potential client turns up at his door? Well, you can probably guess. This is The New Adventures of Nero Wolf with The Case of the Dear Dead Lady, starring Sidney Greenstreet in a broadcast from November 3rd, 1950. Stay tuned for Nero Wolf. This Sunday marks the premiere of The Big Show on NBC. Not just any big show, it's the big show. NBC's hour and a half of comedy, music, and drama. The best of each. The Big Show will be heard every Sunday afternoon over most of these stations with Tallulah Bankhead as Mistress of Ceremonies. Your stars for this Sunday's broadcast include Jimmy Durante, Fred Allen, Ethel Merman, Frankie Lane, Mindy Carson, Meredith Wilson, Danny Thomas, and hosts of others. All this and Tallulah, too. No wonder it's The Big Show. My boss is the smartest and the stubbornest, the fattest and the laziest, the cleverest and the craziest, the most extravagant detective in the world, Nero Wolfe. It's the adventure of the case of the dear dead lady with that brilliant eccentric private detective, orchid fancier and gargantuan gourmet, Nero Wolfe, starring Sidney Greenstreet. <laughs> Nero Wolf had just come downstairs, having tended to his precious orchids. He was, as usual, seated in the library, which served as the office. He had just dialed a phone number, and with his eyes closed, was leaning back in his specially built chair, which was big enough for two, but not two of him. Market, domestic and imported delicacies. Mr. Halsbrecher, this is Nero Wolf. Oh, oh, yeah, Mr. Wolf. I was just about to ring you. Well, I have need of two pounds of duck liver. Ah. I do not, of course, refer to the commercialized Strasbourg pate. Well, I appreciate the order, Mr. Wolf, but... Uh... Next, my cook, Fritz, informs me that we require three fine fat geese. Look, Mr. Wolf. There's a little matter of an unpaid You bill. might add 12 cases of beer, a bushel of Vermont apples, green for stuffing, and a gallon of Marquisa Patrisa Roman oil. Mr. Wolf. In addition, I... Fritz has listed six dozen eggs, four braces of Sussex woodcock, and a few pounds of Westphalian ham. You have all that? Well, I, I can get it, Mr. Wolf, but my bookkeeper... Thanks very much, Mr. Halsbracker. That will be all. Yeah. <clears throat> Now then, Archie. Yes, boss? You seem to be worried. Oh, I am. This means naturally that I'm supposed to handle Haltzbrecher's delivery boy when and if he shows. I had thought of leaving that simple matter to you. And what about the simple matter of the money? Money? I, I hate to bring up a vulgar subject, but where is it coming from? Oh, of course. You're right, Archie. I should have said... Said that... what? 
charge it. Boss, look, you don't realize, I know, but we're into that truffle broker for 500-odd bucks and change. All right, all right, then give him a check. Okay. Okay, I will give him a check. And I hope they'll let you keep the orchids in your cell. You're a wit, Archie. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I'm on the bank's mailing list. We got a notice this morning. Don't mean... Oh, but I do. Again? Yeah, you just can't take money out of an account, boss. Sometimes you gotta put some in. This is the only way to deal with the man I work for, and if I hadn't thrown him that scare, he wouldn't have been willing to listen when the door buzzer rang, and a prosperous-looking young guy in the kind of clothes that don't grow on trees came in and stood in front of the boss's chair, fiddling with the brim of his pork pie. My name is Oliphant, Mr. Wolf. Oliphant? Uh, yes, sir, Oliphant. I am the spiritual leader and guiding head of a small religious group known as the Seekers of the Inner Power. Ah, I see. Also a man addicted to marrying neither wisely nor well, but often. You read the papers. I do. Uh, Mr. Wolf, I am as aware of my sin-ridden past as anyone else is. The point is that I'm no longer that kind of man. Even a person such as I can see the light in time. Good. Might I ask why you've come to see me, Mr. Oliphant? I need your help, Mr. Wolf. Concerning? A certain young lady with whom I'm deeply in love. Oh, I beg you not to confuse the present emotion with any of my earlier escapades. What I feel for Miss Dana is the pure and righteous glow of an upright seeker of the inner power. I promise to look on you as thoroughly redeemed, Mr. Oliphant. Proceed. Oh, by the way, do I recognize the name of your young lady as a Park Avenue socialite, an amateur swimming champion? Yes. But she's sweet, wonderful, beautiful. I've asked her to marry me, and she's given me some hope. In time, I fully expect to make her my wife. Well, then where's the problem? The problem is the presence of another man in her life. I'm sorry, sir. I'm a detective, not a matchmaker. This isn't a question of making a match, Mr. Wolf. I have much too much respect for your talents to think of offering you such an assignment. Exactly. What do you want me to do? I want you to save Ilse Dana's life. Her life? Mr. Wolf, this other man I spoke of is insanely jealous. Not only of Ilse's present, but of her past as well. He has threatened to kill her. I don't doubt your earnestness in this matter, Mr. Oliphant, but how would you know? I was listening on an extension in Miss Dana's apartment a few days ago when Hunter called. Hunter? Yes, sir, Jack Hunter. Known as Jack the Babe Hunter. Wait, wait, wait a minute. I know that canvas back. Huh? Sure, he's a coffee and cake prelim waltzer. Oh, no, he's not. He's a boxer. Archie is being fancy. Overlook it, Mr. Oliphant. Is Hunter in love with this lady of yours? I doubt it. He's a man of complete moral and spiritual corruption, I believe. Naturally, you would. But what are the facts? In my opinion, he's after her for her money. She has money? To burn. And you, Mr. Oliphant? Me. Can you also afford to burn? How much do you want? The answer to that would be astronomical. However, if you leave a check for, say, $7,000, I shall look into your matter the very moment I have completed a little research into the nutrition of the Polynesian orchid. Oliphant's check gave our bank account a slight blood transfusion. I think it was the boss's plan to spend a week or two in the plant rooms before he got busy on the case. And he'd have done it, too, if that phone call hadn't come in about a little after nine, just after Wolf had polished off one of Fritz's dinners and was settling back with a stein of beer in his hand. Don't disturb yourself, Archie. I'll get it. Now, well, look out. You don't strain yourself, boss. 
You got to straighten out an elbow to reach that receiver. You have an unfortunate flair for mixing humor with impertinence, my friend. Hello, Nero Wolf speaking. This is Elsa Dana, Mr. Wolf. How do you do, Miss Dana? We were discussing you only this morning. So I've heard. Through whom? Ted Oliphant. I see. The young man seemed to be quite worried about you. The young man should tend to his own affairs. He said you were in some danger. I know what he said. And not one word of it was true. Oh? Uh, I'd like to talk to you, Mr. Wolf. I'm sure it'd be an immense pleasure. Where do you live? I have an apartment at uh, 22 Blanton Street. Could you be here soon? I could be there in a quarter of an hour, Miss Dana. By proxy, of course. The proxy, naturally, was yours truly. Ten minutes later, at twenty past nine, I walked up to Ilsa Dana's door with a nosy elevator boy giving me the double O. The reason for his interest was that her door was open and the room inside was empty except for a little twisted pile of pale pink satin, which at close range turned out to be a woman. Which woman turned out to be Ilsa Dana? And Ilsa Dana was dead. She used to be pretty. She isn't now. Yeah, strangulation doesn't help any girl's looks, son. Make anything of it? Well, the position of her body and the bloodstains on her pointed fingernails tells me that she put up a tough struggle before somebody succeeded in smothering with a pillow from the sofa over there. Yeah, that figures. When did it happen, I wonder? Yeah, the last 15 minutes, I'd guess. Say, who's been up in the elevator this evening? Nobody for her. Well, somebody came up. Well, who says not? They could have used the stairs, you know. Yeah. How well do you know Miss Dana? I know exactly zero about Miss Dana. How could you write her up and down every day and know nothing about her? It's a rule at a house to keep your mouth shut. The rule also goes when being questioned by a cop. A cop? Who's a cop? Oh, I guess you're a cello player from the Philharmonic. Look, I happen to work for a guy named Nero Wolf. Oh. Heard of him? Maybe. Well, if your memory comes alive, son, I might see my way clear to uh, spend a few dollars with you. Understand? I'll keep you in mind. Going down, mister? I spent time trying to get sense out of the superintendent and a set of chambermaids, but they were as quiet as a ballpark on Christmas Eve. Then I called the cops and told them about Oliphant and Hunter. By the time I got home, the house was dark and Nero Wolf was sleeping. Next morning, I gave him the details while he drank three bottles of beer. When I finished, he sat for a long time and then started another bottle. The prize fighter. What about the prize fighter, Archie? Hunter? Well, I, I phoned the hotel he lives in before you got up. And? They told me he wasn't in. Hmm. You know, I begin to think that Mr. Oliphant brought us a more absorbing case than he suspected. You know, I'm glad you like it. I don't like it. I don't like work of any variety. But this thing has its points. Well, what do we do next? Next, we investigate my client. What? Merely because a reformed playboy employs a detective doesn't exempt him from suspicion, Archie. Oh, now who's that? I'm afraid we have no choice but to open the door and see. My name is Young. Barstow Young. It's nice meeting you, Mr. Young. What do you want? I want to see Nero Wolf. About? Uh... About a certain young lady with whom I am deeply in love. What? Will you repeat that? I want to see Mr. Wolf about a certain young lady with whom I am deeply in love. Mm -hmm. 
Her name, please? Ilsa Dana. Is it possible that you entertain plans of making her your wife? Why, I... Yes, but uh, there's a problem involved. Another man? Uh, yes. Well, and... do come in. Do come in. I think we've been waiting for you. Oh, Mr. Wolf. Here's another one. Ah, Mr. Wolf. You've come to me about Miss Ilsa Dana, sir? I have come to you more specifically about a man who has threatened her life. Hmm. How unusual. He's the treacherous kind. Mild-mannered, you know. As we say in my profession, he underplays it. Your profession, then, is the stage. It is, sir. Go on, you interest me deeply. I was present recently when he told her that he would certainly kill her unless she mended her sinful ways. Sinful? No one denies that Ilsa has had, uh, shall we say, a checkered career. But the man's attitude is totally fanatical. What's his particular brand of fanaticism, Mr. Young? Theodore Oliphant is a religious maniac. Well, what do you know? He's come to give Theodore a bad report card. I don't understand. I, I've come to ask Mr. Wolfe to prevent his murdering Miss Dana. Am I allowed a direct question, sir? Why, of course. Where were you between 9 and 9.20 p.m. last night? 9 and 9.20? Why do you ask? You said I was permitted a direct question. Oh, well, I was walking in the uh, park, as I remember. Do you make a habit of walking in the park? I have lately. I'm preparing for an important role in the forthcoming production. What's so important about last night? From your point of view, a great deal, sir. Well, what do you mean? Last night, Miss Ilsa Dana was murdered. What? Mr. Goodwin here discovered the body. No. I'm afraid I must insist, Mr. Young. Oh, why, why are you looking at me like that? Uh, are you accusing me of... A, I a... have accused you of nothing, my dear sir. Well, now, look, you're making a mistake. Oliphant killed her. You may be sure of that. I have your word. I know him. He was trying to reform her. Wanted to make her a devout follower of his cult, the seekers of power. I heard him tell her to her face that if she refused redemption... He would see to it that she didn't live on in her wickedness. You could produce other witnesses? Do you know, in your own smug way, you're as detestable a character as I have ever had. All right, all right. Let's everybody take five. Yeah? Nero Wolf? He's busy. This is Archie Goodwin. You'll do, Goodwin. This is Jack the Babe Hunter. Oh? Uh, how are you? Great. Except the cops seem to want to talk to me about some murder fandango because, as I get it, you named my name. You got it wrong. I doubt it, and I'm coming over there to set you straight. Why'd you ring me in on this mess, Wolf? You knew the girl pretty well. Me and how many more? Besides, what time was she murdered? Last night, between 9 and 9.20. See. So if you will inform the police where you were at the time, that should be that. Yeah. By the way, Mr. Hunter, where were you at the time? I don't see your badge, Wolf. I was only wondering. I haven't been near the Dana woman for over a month. But if you're really interested, I'll give you the name of the killer. Please do not keep us in suspense, Mr. Hunter. A couple of years back, Ilsa financed a guy in a big and lousy Shakespearean play that closed like a clam and nothing flat. Go on. It was money down the drain. The guy's got nerve. And he was in love with her, and he figured she'd do anything for him. So he comes back to her to finance him again. This time in Hamlet, no less. I see. I don't have to tell you what a flop that would be. 
You needn't tell me the actor's name either. You know? Mr. Barstow Young just left here. Yeah? Well, he's your man, Wolf. He got so sore when she told him she wouldn't toss any more moolah into his broken-down career, he went off his rocker and tore it down. Your reason for thinking so? I met him on the street one day, and he started beefing to me with blood in his eyes. So all I could do not to punch him. The results might have been less fatal if you'd followed your instincts, sir. Ugh, I couldn't. Guy's built like a broomstick. He's weak as a cat. Hit him once, he'd crack like dry plaster. I see. Hmm. What's on your mind? This man you're accusing of Miss Stainer's murder, Mr. Hunter, he was very much in love with her. She was thinking about marrying him, he said. He said? Yes, he did. I heard him, too. He was talking through his skullcap. Ilsa wasn't going to marry anybody. No? No, she couldn't. Why couldn't she? Well, but she just couldn't, that's all. So long. Well, now we got a perfect circle with everybody pointing at everybody else and nobody able to prove a thing. What Hunter says isn't impossible, Archie. You think Young did it? I don't think at all yet. But if there's anything more dangerous than a woman scorned, it's an actor scorned. We have another visitor. Yeah, who are you expecting? At this point, anybody. Hi. Oh, you. Yeah, I told you you might hear from me. Come on in. Who's this? A uh, fellow runs the elevator at 22 Blanton Street. What do you got for me, kid? Postcard. Postcard? Yeah, the cops missed it, but I spotted the edge stuck under a rug. Nice of you to have delivered it. Well, maybe he was just being curious. Curious? It's not every elevator boy who has a chance to see Nero Wolf in the flesh. Oh, him? <laughs> Come off it, High Pockets. I'm here because you mentioned something about spending a few bucks. Oh. I wouldn't cross the street to see the best gumshoe that ever breathed. Look, gumshoes don't breathe, and how would you like a sock Archie, and a... pay him and let him go. Yeah, pay me and let me go. Sure, Mr. Wolf. Here you are. Thanks. Don't mention it. Anytime, pal. Anytime. How do you like that fresh little punk? Archie, the lad has done us nobly. Yeah? Typewritten card addressed to Miss Ilsa Dana. Well, what's it say? Rather peculiar message. Have you prayed tonight? It's signed with the single letter O. Have you prayed tonight? Yes. Signed O? Exactly. Weird, isn't it? Well, what's weird about it? What could be plainer? Have you prayed tonight? Now, I ask you, who is the man in this deal who's interested in praying? All of us, I hope, are God-fearing. All right, all right. But I ask you again, what does O stand for? It could stand for O'Brien, Obituary, Omaha. What about Oliphant? Oliphant, too. Look, what, what's with this indifference? The case is cracking and you slough it off. You remember what Young said? Oliphant threatened to kill her because she wouldn't join that cockeyed movement of his. Don't exhaust yourself, Archie. We have a hard night ahead. Yes, but I don't understand. But I don't mean to stifle your imagination, my friend. But if you'd reserve your deductions for a little while, you could lend me some much-needed assistance. What do you want? I want you to become a burglar. A burglar? I want you to hurry over to the dead woman's apartment on Branton Street and ransack it. For what? How do I know? We need help. Anything may help us. Go through the place with a fine tooth comb. I tore the late Miss Dana's apartment to shreds, but I saw nothing. 
Then, just as I was about to give it up as a bum job, I noticed a little writing desk in the living room. Pride loosed the lock and spotted something among a pile of papers that belonged in no well-to-do flat. It was a pawn ticket, lot 8N046, and the address was a pawn shop around the corner on 6th Avenue. It wasn't more than 90 seconds later that I walked into the joint and tossed the ticket across the counter. Oh, oh yeah, this, uh, want to redeem it. And fast, up, Pops? Yeah, it's nothing that's worth much, mister. No? No. Uh, oh, what is it? This small steel filing box. Oh. Anything in it? I don't know. Come to me locked, never been able to get it open. We got it open, Wolf and I. Smashed the front end with a poker. There were some odds and ends inside, old earrings, some thumbtacks, a cigarette lighter, just trash. Then the boss stuck his fingers in and pulled out a plum. This is it. What do you mean, this is it? You fail to recognize this classic document? Huh? A marriage license, Archie. A marriage license. Yeah, well, whose marriage license? The wording is self-explanatory. Listen. This is to certify, etc., etc., thus licensing on this third day of May, 1946, the marriage of Miss Ilsa Dana to Mr. Johan Jaeger. Johan Jaeger? Exactly. Well, who in the world is Johan Jaeger? We'll soon see. I don't get it. I can understand. It's a befuddling little puzzle. It'd be very easy for one to make a fatal mistake here. But, of course, you won't. I won't. Three hours later, I'd herded all the suspects into the office, and he sat in his chair and glared at them. Oliphant, Young, and Hunter. It was tense and tight, and the boss let it stay that way, saying not a word to anybody while he calmly sipped his beer. It was Oliphant who cracked first. I didn't kill Ilsa. I couldn't have. Jealousy is a very compelling motive, Mr. Oliphant. And you came to me, remember, complaining that there was another man in Ilsa Dana's life? Whatever I complained about him, and jealous as I was, I didn't kill her as the sacred power is my holy judge. Being unacquainted with your sacred power, I'll have to ask you for a better authority. Sacred power? Oh, it simply wouldn't have been possible for me to have done it. Why not? Yeah, why not? Because I... I was at Mickey's Night Owl Club last night from 7 until 4 a.m. Contemplating the sacred power, no doubt. That can be proved, Mr. Oliphant? Well, let me call now. Let the head waiter tell you. Hmm. Will you take your embarrassment as an indication that you're telling the truth? Hey, wait a minute. You you can't let him off like that. Don't be bothersome, Archie. Yeah, but we got that card he wrote, the one about have, have you prayed tonight, signed with his initial. He didn't write that card, Archie. Now, look. And the O is not his initial, is it, Mr. Barstow Young? Uh, I'm afraid I, I don't understand. On the contrary, I'm afraid you do. But for the record, I'll explain. Oh, Archie. Yes, boss? Hand Mr. Young that large red volume off the shelf behind Mr. Hunter's head. This one? That one, thank you. Now then, Mr. Young, you will favor me by opening the volume to page 1133. But why? Open it, sir. Good. You will now count six lines down from the top and read what you see. Have you prayed tonight? Thank you, Mr. Young. What the devil is going Mr. on? Mr. Young has just given us a reading from a tragedy. The line, have you prayed tonight, is spoken by the hero to the heroine just before he murders her. The name of the heroine is Desdemona. And the hero, as I'm sure you all know, is Othello. Othello? Yeah, the O was not Oliphant, Archie. 
A fellow, I think, was a Shakespearean play which Miss Dana financed for our Mr. Young. And knowing she would recognize the quotation as well as the threat behind it, he sent it to her to warn her that he meant to murder her. You won't have the unmitigated gall to deny that, will you, Mr. Young? No. No, I don't deny it. Do I call the police? But I didn't kill her. The fact that I sent the car doesn't mean I killed her. Well, it'll do for my money. But not for mine, Archie. What? Mr. Young couldn't have killed Miss Dana. Why not? Because he lacks the strength to strangle such a healthy young woman, a champion athlete. Wide awake and full of fight. He's rather a frail person, as we know. And smothering Miss Dana with that pillow was no easy task. She struggled. Therefore, she clawed the wrists of the murderer. I'm sure that if you examine Mr. Young's wrists, you will find no scratches or scars. Here, let me see that. Go ahead. Well, Archie? Yeah, you're right. Nothing. I was sure there wouldn't be. The person who actually killed Miss Dana was a powerful physical specimen. Yeah? Yes, Mr. Hunter. In all probability, a professional athlete. A muscular man in good condition. You pointing at me? Seems quite likely, doesn't it? You're out of your head. Am I? Yeah. Yes, Adina, war ihr Frau? Nicht wahr? Jawohl. I... I mean... You said yeah, Mr. Hunter. And you meant yeah, yes. I asked you in German if Elsa Dana was your wife. And you, in the heat of emotion, answered me yes in your mother tongue. Look, what's going on here? Allow me to present Mr. Johann Jaeger, Archie. Him? I've known it since we first saw that marriage license. You see, Jack Hunter is the English translation of our friend's real name back in Germany. Where he comes from, Mr. Johann Jaeger. Oh, what do you know? So you proved nothing. Yeah, I was married to Ilse. That's why I said she couldn't marry anybody else. But I didn't kill her. She was my wife. I loved her. Oliver told us you were insanely jealous of her. What if he did? You know better. Do we? Sure you do. Ilsa told yourself over the phone that every word Oliphant said was a lie. Interesting. What is? How you could possibly know what Ilsa Dana told me over the phone. I haven't mentioned it to you or anybody else. Oh, well, well, you see it. I see most clearly, Mr. Yeager, that you must have been in the apartment with her listening on the extension phone... Or you couldn't possibly have that information. And it was only a few minutes after that telephone call that Ilsa Dana was smothered to death. And I see it's about time I said good night. Wait a minute, Jaeger. Good work, Archie. I advise you to sit still, Mr. Johan Jaeger Hunter. I was right. I told you he threatened the killer. But why? I've only guessed at the story. Reconstructed it, so to say. But I think you and Mr. Young are to be congratulated. On what, sir? On not having won your fair lady. You've always thought of her as a sweet, demure society girl. But actually, she was a vicious person, as bad as the man who killed her, if not worse. She tortured him cruelly for four long years. How can you say that about her? How can you doubt it, Mr. Oliphant? There must have been a great many men in her life. We know at least two definitely, you and Mr. Young. But she was in love with me. She was in love with me. I'm sorry to shatter your illusions, but she was not in love with either of you. She was using you for her purpose. What was her purpose? Tementing the man she married. That was her preoccupation day and night. She delighted in tyrannizing over him. One might in breaking a bull or taming a wild mustang. Do I come near the truth, Hunter? Yes. Until I couldn't stand it any longer. May I ask then why you married her? Why? Because I couldn't help myself. I 
crawled for her. I married her on the terms that nobody should ever know I was her husband. She was too good for me, she told me that to my face, over and over. But we belonged to different worlds. But I was crazy about her, so I took it. What I've taken, you wouldn't believe. Oh, I am sure I would, Mr. Hunt. I'm a very understanding man. The question is, will a jury believe you? And that we must begin to learn immediately. Archie. Yes, sir? Phone for Inspector Kramer. have been listening to The New Adventures of Nero Wolf, starring Sidney Greenstreet. Tonight's transcribed story by Peter Berry was based on the famous characters created by Rex Stout. This is an Edwin Fadiman program produced and directed by J. Donald Wilson. In the cast were Herb Ellis as Archie Goodwin and Lee Millar, Marna Keneally, Larry Dobkin, Barney Phillips, and Jerry Hosner. Next week at this same time, Nero Wolfe and Archie will bring you The Case of the Headless Hunter. Don Stanley speaking. And don't forget, this Sunday marks the premiere of The Big Show on NBC. Not just any big show, it's The Big Show. NBC's hour and a half of comedy, music, drama, and the best of each. The Big Show will be heard every Sunday afternoon over most of these stations with Tallulah Bankhead as Mistress of Ceremonies. Your stars for this Sunday's broadcast include Jimmy Durante, Fred Allen, Ethel Merman, Frankie Lane, Mindy Carson, Meredith Wilson, Danny Thomas, and hosts of others. No wonder it's The Big Show. And Theater Guild on the air this Sunday presents Judy Garland in Miss Alice Adams. So don't forget, Tallulah Bankhead brings you the big show Sunday on NBC. Whether he was playing the right side of the law or the dark side, Sidney Greenstreet made a career of characters who were smart and, for a time, a step ahead of the competition while he did not begin his career in films, Green Street, until the age of 61, he had a run of significant motion pictures in Hollywood in a career lasting through the 40s. Green Street was a stage actor in England and America for many years before his 1941 debut as Gutman in the Maltese Falcon at the age of 61. What a way to begin. And he followed up his debut with Casablanca. Not a bad start at all. Get ready to board the train and hear a tale from the mysterious traveler next. This is Skywave Audio Theater. Your companion on the train specialized in strange, sometimes bizarre stories. For this particular outing, he takes you on an expedition in the southwest United States, apparently, although we find ourselves on the Colorado River in Aztec country on the trail of some gold seekers. You can see how our storyteller would be disoriented. Our story is called Behind the Locked Door. It's The Mysterious Traveler from November 6, 1951. The 
Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Traveler. Written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Coulton. And starring two of radio's foremost personalities, Lyle Sudrow and Robert Darnley, in Behind the Locked Door. This is a mysterious traveler inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and chill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as I bring you the strange and chilling story so many of you have asked to hear again. I call it Behind the Locked Door. Our story begins in the beautiful mountain region of Lake Mead, Arizona. A convertible car is speeding along a deserted road which winds through the mountains. The car slows down and turns into a dirt road. A few minutes later, it comes to a stop before a small mountain lodge. Kathy Evans, an attractive girl in her early 20s, gets out of the car, runs up the steps of the lodge to the front door. She knocks impatiently, looking about anxiously. Yes? Martin. Kathy. I thought I'd find you here. Aren't you going to ask me? Go away, Kathy. Martin, what's wrong? Go away. Go away. Not until I find out what this is all about. Well, let me in. Are you alone? Alone? Yes. Darling, look at yourself. You haven't shaved in days. Martin, those deep gashes on your nicking face. How did you get them? It doesn't matter. Darling, you must have lost a great deal of blood. And your fever. Yes, I know. Is it true about Professor Stevens? Yes. Why did you leave town so suddenly last night? The authorities are looking for you. Do they know I'm here? No. How could they? It was intuition that brought me here. They mustn't find me. Martin, Hmm. nothing makes sense. Hmm. You returned from an expedition last night alone, unexpected. You stay in town one hour and then vanish. Not even phoning me. It's best that way. Believe me, Kathy. You've got to tell me everything that's happened. I can't, Kathy. I can't. I'm your fiancé. I've got a right to know. Kathy, go away, please. I won't go away until you tell me what's happened. If I do, then will you go? Yes. I... I don't know where to begin. I suppose if you can say it had a beginning. It it was that day a little over two weeks ago in Professor Stevens' office. Come in, Martin. Come in. Have a seat. Thank you, Professor. Martin, how would you like to go exploring with me for, say, ten days and two weeks at the outside? Exploring where? The Vermilion Cliffs along the Colorado River. I found some wonderful Aztec pieces there last summer. 
One large cave I stumbled on proved to be a veritable treasure trove. Yes, yes, I've seen those Aztec pieces in the University Museum. Now, the Vermilion Cliffs still remain largely unexplored. I'm sure that we could turn up many more objects of interest. <laughs> it certainly sounds intriguing. The only reason I hesitate, Professor, is because of Kathy. Oh, I'm sure she'd give you a two-week leave of absence. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. How many of us would go? Well, it would just be you, myself, and an Indian guide. And three burrows. I find that the fewer there are on an expedition, the better. Mm -hmm. When would we leave? Well, what about the day after tomorrow? All right, Professor, I'm with you. So these are the Vermilion Cliffs, Professor. Yes. An awe-inspiring sight, aren't they? Yeah, they're as breathtaking as the Grand Canyon itself. I had no idea they towered so high. Yes, they make you realize just how insignificant man really is. Yeah. Now, this region is so desolate, Martin, that it's all but unexplored. That's why I'm drawn to it time and time again. Yes, I can understand that. It represents the challenge of the unknown. <laughs> Careful, Martin, you'll get the exploring bug. Oh, I've already been bitten, Professor. Well, if you're going to be an explorer and an archaeologist, I'll have to start teaching you the fundamentals of the profession. Stan, this seems like a good spot. We'll camp here for the night. Phew. Well, it certainly is hot, Professor. Exploring isn't as easy as I thought. Yeah. All right, Professor, what is it? For 20 minutes now, you've been sitting on that rock staring at that cliff. Yeah. Note the boulders strewn over the face of that cliff. What about them? Well, that's a very peculiar landslide. If you carefully study the formation of it... What's peculiar about it? Many of the rocks look as though they'd been placed there by human hands. <laughs> But why and by whom? Well, one of the ancient Aztec forms of punishment was to seal a person in a cave by means of a landslide or just piling heavy rocks in front of the mouth of the cave. Hmm. That landslide, there must be hundreds of tons of rock there. Yeah. Well, fortunately, we're prepared for it. Is that why you brought the dynamite along? Yes. <laughs> Probably all we'll find will be a skeleton. In that case, it'll have been a waste of dynamite. However, we'll chance it. Oh, Sam. What do you want? Get the case of dynamite, Sam. I'm going to blast that landslide. Professor. Better leave it same way it be. Why? Evil spirit sleeping cave. Better not wake him up. <laughs> you really believe that, Martin? I wouldn't laugh. Sam may be uneducated. But he senses things that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. Well, now, wait a minute. You mean you believe what he said about evil being asleep in that cave? I wouldn't say that I believe it. But nevertheless, I respect Sam's opinion. But Sam, I still want to blast that landslide. Hey, get dynamite. Keep your head down, Martin. When I set that dynamite off, there are going to be a great many rocks flying around. Don't worry, Professor. I've got cover. Sam, you ready? 
Yes, Professor. Right. Here goes. Keep your head down. All right. It's safe now. Professor, I think you did it. I can see a small opening. It looks like a mouth of a cave. Yes, it is. Sam, let me have one of the flashlights. Martin, you take the other. Uh, I'll lead the way in. Just as you say, Professor. The air doesn't seem too bad in here. Yes, it's all right. Yeah, it... What's that noise? Just rats scurrying around. Oh. Certainly a huge cavern. Mm. Look at that ceiling. Must be 200 feet high. Look at the bats up there. Yes, huge ones. I have a feeling that this cavern and others extend for miles underground. Yeah, I... Professor, look. Skeleton. Yes. There's, there's another one over there. Yes. See what else there is. Wagon train. What? Good Lord. Sam's right. It's a wagon train. A wagon train? Yeah. There are at least 30 or 40 wagons in this cavern. Look. Skeletons of horses. Yeah. Here's a skeleton with an arrow beside it. Let me see it. Seems yeah. to be a Navajo arrow. What do you think, Sam? Navajo. Professor, this. This wagon train, what's it all mean? Well, many years ago, this wagon train was attacked by Indians. Wagon train retreated into this cavern, hoping to save themselves that way. And then the Indians caused the landslide, sealing them in. Yes. Poor devils. Look, notice that old gun lying there. Yeah. The flintlock. Seems to suggest that this wagon train must be at least a hundred years old. Yeah, probably headed for the California gold rush of 1848. Yes. Well, we'll come back tomorrow and search this wagon train thoroughly. I'm sure we'll find many things of great interest. The next morning, after an early breakfast, Sam and I followed Professor Stevens back into the cabin. We spent the morning investigating the trunks and boxes we found on the wagons. And among the moldy clothing and 101 household articles, we found faded letters and newspapers which showed the wagon train had crossed the Mississippi in the summer of 1849, headed west for California and gold. We finished rummaging among the effects of the wagons, and the professor suggested we explore the cavern. We followed him from one cavern to another, each varying in size. Now and then the professor would stop to mark our trail, for the caverns were honeycombed with countless passageways. How far do you think we've come, Professor? I should say we're about a mile from the wagon train. Huh? We'll go back a few more minutes. We'll go back now. This place evil. Well, Sam, if there are ghosts here, they're only the ghosts of the people in the wagon train. They wouldn't harm us. I tell you, evil. Feel it. All around. We'll go back. We'll go just a little further. And turn back. Yeah, Professor, wait a minute. What is it, Martin? I think I hear running water. Yes, you're right. Come along. 
We seem to be getting closer. There. Yeah. Evil Colorado. Can't be much further. Well, there it is. Yeah. It's a small river. <laughs> Look how swiftly it's flowing. Yeah. It probably flows for miles underground and it empties into the Colorado River. Say, Professor, here along the bank, there's a tremendous pile of fish bones. Yes, yeah, so there is. Look. Well, there are even more on the other side of the river. Hmm. What do these huge piles of fish bones mean? It's very strange. How do you account for it? I'm afraid that at the moment I can't. Sam, you any ideas about it? Evil Colorandus. Feel him strong. Professor, he's trembling. Sam, there's nothing to be afraid of. Look, I'll shine my flashlight around, please. We've been watched. Watched? What are you talking about? One stay here. I go. Sam, come back. You haven't even got a flashlight. Sam! Come on, Mark. We've got the catch in this room. Sam! Wait for us. I can still hear his footsteps. We've got the catch here. Can you finish off a serious injury running in the dark like that? Sam! Wait for us! Professor, it's Sam screaming. This way. A fool's probably broken his leg. Sounds more like a fight. I? Who could he possibly be fighting with? Stop. Sam, where are you? Keep shining a flashlight around. Can't be much further. Sam! There he is. Yes. Yes. Just, just sitting against that boulder. His head down. Sam. Sam. Give me a hand with him. God, Lord. His face. Nick. Yes. I don't know, but there must be an explanation. There has to be. Arthur, I have a theory. But it's so incredible that I can't bring myself to Martin. Tell me. What do you think I'm in? Tell me. What if the people of the wagon train, or rather the descendants, are alive here in these huge caverns. Oh, that's impossible. Why? Picture what happened the day the 150 people or so were sealed into this mountain with the Indians. What would have been the first thing they'd have done? Try to dig their way out. Exactly. They start digging and find there are 100 ton boulders blocking the entrance, and they have no dynamite. They're forced to give up. Yes. They spend days looking for another way out, fail to find one. The day comes when all their food is gone. Starvation sets in. All right, all right. Then that would mean they would all die. Not necessarily. The strongest of them stumble along in the darkness and find the underground river. They catch an abundance of fish and are able to survive. The huge fishbone piles along the river. The river was an everlasting supply of food. They continue to live by the river in the dark. Um... Probably went insane, died. Others adjusted themselves to their new environment. Professor, you, you think those handful of survivors had descendants who are alive today inside this mountain? Yes, Martin. 
Then it was one of them who clawed Sam to death. What can those descendants be like? Being born and, and, and living in darkness? I can only guess. I should imagine they'd be blind or near to it. But their other senses would be remarkably developed. The physical appearance. I don't know. It's not like a nightmare. It's a nightmare you can't awaken from. What, what's to prevent them from attacking us? And our flashlights, for one thing. I'm sure light frightens them. Just as fire frightens animals. Fortunately, I have a revolver. Well, we better move on. Wait a minute. What about Sam? And nothing we can do for him now. Come along, Martin. We must find the trail I marked so that we can get out of here. Uh, seems we've been searching days for the markings you left. Yes. Actually, it's been ten hours. Bless you, boy. The river. Yes. Uh, come along. Yeah. Once we reach the river... We'll be able to pick up the trail, I'm on. Well, we're getting closer. Yes. There it is. Here we are. Look, Martin, there's my marking on the passageway. We found the trail. Yes. Martin, 2 a.m. We'd better rest for a few hours. We're both too exhausted to go on right now. If one of us stand guard, and the other sleeps. All right. Oh, I'll set up the first hour. Thank you, Martin. Keep the flashlight on. Don't worry. I will. In a matter of minutes, the professor fell asleep. And I sat on guard, flashing my light slowly around the huge cabin. I looked at my watch in a second, seemed like minutes and a minute, like hours. My eyes grew heavy and I finally dozed off. Suddenly, I awakened in the darkness to hear the professor screaming. Martin, help me! Turn on the flashlight! Frankly, frantically, I fumbled in the darkness, but I couldn't find it. And suddenly, we were shot. By the flashes of the gun, I could see the professor struggling with a huge, dark figure. And suddenly, all was quiet. Except for the professor's moon. As I crawled toward him, in the darkness, my hand struck the flashlight. I turned it on, and there was the professor. Uh, Martin, I think... I'm wounded. You're bleeding badly. Let me touch your wounds. Please. Leave that one. That one. But what about you? Professor? Professor? I felt his heart. But there was no beat. I staggered to my feet. Shined my flashlight around until I found the professor's marking. I stumbled wearily along the marked passageway, trying not to remember my last glimpse of the professor's face. I hadn't gone more than a hundred yards when suddenly my flashlight flickered and went out. As I stood alone in the darkness, that scampering past I fought to keep from screaming. The darkness seemed to become heavier and more oppressive with each passing moment, and I had the feeling something was silently approaching. I, I backed 
Up against the passage wall, waited, my eyes straining in the darkness, and then suddenly I was leaped upon by a wild fury. I threw my arms up and raised them like Charles Drake, my face and neck. Again and again, the guard was out of the side, and I could feel the blood streaming down my face and neck. And then suddenly the deathly clawing ceased as my attacker turned to ward off something in the dark. As I sank to my knees, I was dimly aware of a fierce fight taking place in the men's consciousness. <laughs> Later. How much later, I have no way of knowing. I became aware of a heavy, calloused hand washing my face and neck with water. I winced in pain as the water flowed into the deep cuts, and then suddenly I remembered all. And remembering all, became aware of the calloused hand washing my face in the presence of someone beside me in the darkness. Who are you? For a moment, the hand hesitated, then resumed washing the neck. Well, can't you speak? Say something. The noise came its throat that was more than that of an animal than a human being. If I could only see you. Do you have a name? It spoke. It seemed to repeat the word name, though I couldn't be sure. And faint from the loss of blood, I closed my eyes and fell asleep. When I awoke, my face and neck felt stiff and painful. It seemed to sense I was awake for as I opened my eyes and stared into the darkness that came to my side. Can't, can't you understand anything at all? Don't my words make any sense to you? Why did you save my life? My hand brushed against its hand. And I could feel it sharp, claw-like fingers on it. I reached out in the darkness as I touched its face. It bit my hand. <laughs> I tried to get to my feet, but it placed a strong hand on my shoulder and held me down. At that moment, I realized that not only was it my savior, but my jailer as well. I lost all track of time. Now and then, it would leave me. And I would cautiously get to my feet to steal off. But no sooner had I taken more than a few steps than it would be there at my side, forcing me to return to the bank of the river. I spent my every waking moment trying to think of a way to escape. And then, when my despair was greatest, an idea came to me. The professor had said that the underground river I lay beside emptied into the Colorado River. Though the odds were 100 to 1 against my surviving, I knew it was the only possible way of escape. Slowly, I crawled a few remaining feet to the edge of the river and, leaning over, started to wash my face. I could sense that it was watching me. I leaned forward a few inches more and fell into the river. As I came up for air in the swift flowing water, I heard a splash beside me. A moment later, I felt its arms around me. The current swept us along with breathtaking speed, and as we clung to each other, I discovered that it couldn't swim. 
for what seemed hours, the river swept us along in the darkness, and I felt myself losing consciousness as I attempted to keep the two of us above water. When, when I regained consciousness, Kathy, we were both lying on a sandbar in the Colorado River, and the sun was beating down on us. Calling your delirious from your wounds. You need a doctor. <laughs> I wish. I wish it were simple as all that. You're feverish. You need care. Oh, go away, Kathy. Go away. How can I? Leaving you alone like this? Don't you understand? I'm not alone. She's here. She's here? Yes. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? Turned out to be a she. You're out of your mind. You don't know what you're saying. First time. Lying unconscious on that sandbar, my first instinct was to leave her there. But how could I? She'd saved my life in the cavern and then jumped into the river when she thought I was drowning, even though she couldn't swim herself. Martin, I want you to get a grip on yourself. As I was dependent on her in the dark, she's dependent on me in the light. She's blind. She can't speak yet. She... Like <laughs> you can't believe it's true, can you, Kathy? Neither could I at first. What are you staring at? Huh? Is there anyone in that bedroom? <laughs> well, I'll soon find out. Why is the door locked? She's in there. Martin, you're sick. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I'll prove to you there's no one in that room. It's just your imagination. Give me the key to the door. Kathy, Kathy, go Give away. Give it to me. Thank you. Perhaps when you see the room is empty, you'll be willing to return to town for medical treatment. There. I told you. Mysterious traveler again. Did you enjoy our trip? What's that, madam? You want a description of what Kathy saw when she opened that bedroom door? Well, you might ask Kathy. The only trouble is, the poor girl gets hysterical when you question her about the occupant of that bedroom. I suggest you write a letter to the Museum of Horrors for a full description. They consider the woman of the mountain as their star exhibit. Because when she... Oh, you have to get off here. I'm sorry. I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at the same time. You have just heard The Mysterious Traveler. You may now enjoy other exciting adventures of The Mysterious Traveler in the current issue of The Mysterious Traveler magazine. Our cast, Lyle Sudro, Anne Shepard, and Robert Dantley. With Maurice Topper in the title role. Phil Tonkin speaking. This program came to you from New York. Mutual's ace commentator Cecil Brown, currently on a three month fact finding tour of the world, heads for the Orient on the last lap of his history making trip. 
In these last weeks, Mr. Brown will bring you on the -the on-the-scene reports from such tinderbox areas as India, Hong Kong, Hawaii, Japan, and Honolulu. You won't want to miss any of the eyewitness accounts by this able commentator of the latest happenings in these headline-making spots of the world. Be sure to listen to the news reports of Cecil Brown over most of these stations. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Poor Martin, and poor Kathy, who didn't believe him, when an entire wagon train, what is it, 30 wagons, disappear in a cave, who knows what can happen. That was The Mysterious Traveler with Behind the Locked Door from November 6, 1951. We're going to get even more otherworldly next. It's X-1 here on Skywave Audio Theater. Neocretan dress styles, somothought, thinkers. All of them are everyday features of life in the distant future, or in the mind of Fritz Leiber, author of fantasy, horror, and science fiction for quite a number of years. Among the stories from his half-century career, Appointment in Tomorrow. Here it is from X-1 of November 7, 1956. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, presents X minus one. Tonight, Appointment in Tomorrow by Fritz Leiber. The first angry rays of the sun, which surprisingly enough still rose in the east at 24-hour intervals, pierced the lacy tops of Atlantic combers and touched thousands of sleeping Americans with unconscious fear because of the unpleasant similarity to the ray from World War III's thermonuclear weapons. This was America approaching the end of the 20th century, America of the mask fad for women and the neo-Cretan dress styles, America of your local radiation hospital, of the endless war and the loyalty detector. In his bedroom, in the Thinkers Foundation, Georges Helmut slept. Calculus to the nucleus, adding a quantum equal to the resultant of G sub one prime, repeating, 
His educational sandman purred learnedly in his ear, droning tenser calculus through the night, filling the hours that used to hold man's formless fears and floating anxieties with the rigid form and anchored shapes of mathematics. Precisely at eight, the sidereal alarm went off. Oh, yeah. Ooh, my head. Oh, shower. 96.8, commence. Under the soothing spray of the body temperature robo-shower, Helmut took a deep breath and cast his mind to the limits of the world and his knowledge. It was a somewhat shadowy vision, but he noted with the impartial approval, definitely less shadowy than yesterday morning. Off. Uh, dry blast, commence. Employing a rapid mental scanning technique, he cleared his memory chains of false associations, including those acquired while asleep. He felt the snap of clearing non-thalamic reasoning returning as the brain surged into clear, sharp control. Off. Clothing. Color key 705. He stepped into his clothing, the severe tunic, tights, and soccasins of the modern businessman. He smiled. The next big move had come to him in his sleep, as many of his best decisions did, because he utilized the time-saving technique of somno-thought, which could function at the same time as somno-learning. Attention, robo-locator. Category, rocket physicist. Classification, genius level. Time limit for search, 20 minutes. Commence. Take dictation. Dear fellow scientists, the project is contemplated that will have a crucial bearing on man's future in deep space. Ample non-military government funds are available. There was a time when professional men scoffed at the Thinkers Foundation. Then there was a time when the Thinkers perforce neglected the professional men. Now both times are past. I would like to consult you this afternoon, three o'clock sharp, Thinkers Foundation, signed George Helmut. End of dictation. The president is waiting to see Maisie, sir. He has the general staff with him. March in peace to him. Tell him I'll be down in a few minutes. Huge as a primitive nuclear reactor, Maisie, the great electronic brain, loomed over the knot of hushed-voiced men. Its front was an orderly expanse of controls, indicators, telltales, and terminals the upper ones reached by a chair on a boom. This was the machine with a million times as many synapses as the human brain. The machine that remembered by cutting delicate little notches on the rims of molecules. This was the machine that timid cyberneticists and stuffy professional scientists had said could not be built. Yet this was the machine that the thinkers with characteristic Yankee push had built and named with characteristic irreverence Maisie. Have you the questions for the day, Mr. President? Uh, here, Mr. Helmut. I see. The question on the Pakistan crisis is a little touchy. I don't know. If, if there is enough data to answer it, Maisie will do so. Well, of course, I didn't mean to. Of, of if course. you will excuse me, gentlemen, I will code the questions for Maisie. Oh, section five, question four. Whom would that come from? A uh, number four. Uh, 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 Physics, Opoly, and his research team. I see. Thank you, Mr. President. 
Uh, while I'm coding the tape, there will be time to watch the takeoff of the Mars rocket. Beautiful, beautiful. Oh, I've often wanted to go to New Mexico. As a matter of fact, I've always wanted to go right through uh, to Mars. Uh, Mr. President. My chief of staff thinks the project should be under the Army instead of the Thinkers Foundation. Mr. President, this is the way Maisie designed the project. Oh, I know, I know. That's what I told him. Still, I wish you people could bring back a few of those wise little devils from Mars. It would be a good thing for the party, uh, the country. It's quite unthinkable. The telepathic abilities of the Martians make them extremely sensitive. The conflicts of ordinary Earth minds would impinge on them psychotically. Only the thinkers can contact them because of the clear training and errorless memory chains. Perhaps someday in the future... Ah, there goes the rocket. Beautiful, beautiful. I am ready to submit the question tapes to Maisie. Stand back, gentlemen. Oh, well, sorry, sorry. And now... All right, gentlemen. Maisie is thinking. The question tape, like a New Year's streamer tossed out of a high window into the night, sped on its dark way along spinning rollers. Curling with an intricate aimlessness, it tantalized the silver fingers of a thousand relays, saucily evaded the glances of 10,000 electric eyes, impishly darted down a narrow black alleyway of memory banks, and reaching the center of the cube, suddenly emerged into a small room where a sweating fat man in shorts sat drinking beer. Here it comes. Get off my lap, honey. I've got work to do. Can't it wait? I said get. Oh, you didn't have to do that. When Maisie thinks, she thinks. Open up another beer. Look, I'm not a robo-barmaid. Honey, do what you're told or I'll ship you out where they'll work some of the upholstery off that frame, slopping radioactive mud. You don't have to get nasty, Jan. Here's your beer. Uh, yeah, that's better. It makes you fat. I like to be fat. It makes our relationship more poignant. Pass me the questions and get over to your keyboard. You're a greasy pig. <laughs> but such an attractive pig. Start taping. <sighs> Why, that dirty... What's the matter? Uh, one of the questions. Does Maisie stand for Malezell? For what? Malezell. Does it? Look, you just keep sitting on your brains and let me do the thinking. Tape. Maisie does not stand for male cell. Maisie stands for amazing, humorously given the form of a girl's name. Who is male cell? Edgar Allan Poe. Huh? It's a story. Male cell's chess player. About an automaton that was supposed to play chess. Poe proved it had a man inside it. Oh, and they want to know if Maisie... They're wrong. Maisie doesn't have a man inside it. Just a lump of conceited lard. <laughs> you could have hit me with that. Look at my dress. Get me another glass of beer. Oh. I must have come from the physics section of the Research Institute. Operly in that ape Farquhar. Well, we'll look into that. All right, start taping. Question one. The midterm election vidicast should be spaced as follows. Morton Opperly's living room was 
quite behind the times. Instead of reading tapes, there were books. And instead of a four by six TV screen, there was a Picasso, still faintly radioactive from being smuggled out of the Manhattan crater. Two physicists faced each other across the table, old Mr. Opperly and young Mr. Farquhar. About that male Zell question, Willard, why do you keep teasing the zoo animals? Because the thinkers are charlatans who must be exposed. We know their Maisie is no more than a, a tea leaf reading fake. We've traced their Mars rockets and we know they go into orbit 500 miles above Earth and stay there until it's time to come down with the, the latest miraculous Martian mental science. But we've already exposed the thinkers very thoroughly. You know the good it did. Ah, Willard, the age we live in wants magicians. A scientist tells people the truth. When times are good, when the truth offers no threat, people don't mind. But when times are very, very bad, well, a magician tells people what they wish were true. That perpetual motion works, that colored lights can cure cancer, that a psychosis is no worse than a bad cold, and that they live forever. In good times, magicians are laughed at. They're the luxury of a spoiled, wealthy few. But in bad times, people sell their souls for magic cures and buy perpetual motion machines to power their war rockets. Are we supposed to beg off from a job because it's difficult and dangerous? In my day, Willard, I was one of the frightened men. Later, I was one of the angry men, and then one of the minds of despair. And now I'm convinced that all of my reactions were futile. Exactly. You reacted. You didn't act. If you men who discovered atomic energy had only formed a secret league, if you'd only had the guts and foresight to use your tremendous bargaining power to... Willard, we scientists weren't the stuff of which cloak and dagger men are made. Can you imagine Oppenheimer wearing a mask or old Einstein sneaking into the White House with a bomb in his briefcase? That's not the way power is seized. New ideas aren't useful to men bargaining for power. Only established facts or lies are. What do you want to do? Surrender the world to charlatans without a struggle? The thinkers are vulnerable. Their power is based on a series of lies. All power is. The greater the lie, the greater the power. What's it based on? A few lucky guesses, some faith healing, some science hocus pocus. The power of the thinkers isn't based on what they've got, but on what the world hasn't got. Peace. Honor, a good conscience. They've sent for me. Who? Jan Tregeron? No, George Helmut. I got the radiogram an hour ago. They know they'll have to produce a real nuclear rocket pretty soon, and they'll need our help. I'm afraid, Willard. You think it might be a trap? After the Malzell question, you think they might want to shut me up? I'm not afraid for your life. I'm worried about other things they might do to you. They'd better be worried about the things I'm going to do to them. March in peace to you, Willard Farquhar. You have entered the Thinker's Foundation. Please remain on the slideway. I want to see George Helmut. May we take your hat and coat? What the... Do not be alarmed. Invisible radiations are slaughtering all the germs in your body, while more delicate emanations are producing a benign rearrangement of your emotions. Claptrap. I can recognize a 14-cycle sonic note when I hear one. Where's Helmut? This way, please. Helmut! 
Cut out all this swami stuff. Where are you? I'm afraid Mr. Hamlet won't be able to meet you, Mr. Farquhar. I'm uh, Jan Tregeron. Perhaps you can have your conversation with me. George Helmut waited in a conference room with two dozen empty chairs. He had prepared by two hours rest with the Somno teacher on full volume for this conference, having strengthened his mind by hard years of Somno learning, memory straightening, and sensory training, he had assured himself of the executive power to control the technicians and direct their specialized abilities. Together, they would have built the true Mars rocket. But unfortunately, no one came. Where are they? Report. No word from the door, Master. They can't all be late. Did you check? The calls have been put through. What response? Dr. Burnside reports he received the second message just in time. What second message? The message calling off the meeting. Did he read the text of the second message back? Shall I play it back? Never mind. How was it signed? The signature. Signature, Mr. Jan Tregeron. George Helmut dejectedly examined his organizational charts, and then tapping his stylo on the pad, he extended his mental aura, cleared his memory chains of error, accelerated his cerebral processes by the Harbour-Gerson process he'd practiced for so many years. Slowly, he could feel the tight, heart-squeezing disappointment ebb. He was in control again. Tregeron, he was the one to blame. Tregeron, who was so used to working by deception that he must be shown the light. Well, Willard, how was your adventure among the magicians? Well, they didn't hurt me. You're sure? And are you as determined as ever to smash and expose the thinkers? Of course. Only from now on, I won't embarrass you by asking any male Zell questions. After this, I shall bore from within. Now, where have I heard that phrase before? Do I understand that you are becoming a thinker, Willard? Certainly. That's the only way to smash them. Out-trick all their trickeries. Organize a fifth column. Then, strike. The end justifying the means, of course. Of course. I wonder if becoming a thinker doesn't simply mean that you've decided to use lies and tricks as your chief method. Well, you're working with Helmuth? Not Helmuth. Tregoran. I'm afraid that Helmut's career as a thinker is going to have quite a setback. Ah, well. Goodbye, Willard. Tregoran, I want to talk to you. Shall I leave? No, please stay. Jan? Stay. You ought to enjoy this. George has that errorless memory chain. Tregeron, you know why I'm here. I don't know. I've been sadly remiss on my precognition and clairvoyance exercise. I've been too busy with other things, other people, uh, other exercises. But I don't need Major to guess. You just went ahead and canceled the conference without consulting me. You called it without consulting me. Shouldn't do that sort of a thing, George. I was absolutely sure of my ground, perfectly prepared. I visualized it. 
the rocket boosting up on chemical power, then setting sail. Sail? Sail? <laughs> a nuclear reactor rocket? Oh, George, you're fabulous. Yes, sail. Thin streams of nuclear reflecting material and the rocket feeding Maison streams behind it. I conceived it all complete, except for technical details. George, you are a thinker. A real thinker. I know. Now look here, George. Every man should stick to his trade. Technology isn't ours. You know as well as I do that we're going to have a nuclear spaceship and actually go to Mars someday. Are we? Yes. Just as we're going to have to build an actual Maisie. I helped you organize the thinkers. At least I was your first partner. Our basic idea was that the time had come to apply science to the life of man on a large scale. The only thing holding the world back from this was the ignorance and superstition of the average man and the stuffiness and lack of enterprise of the academic scientists. Their worship of facts, even when the facts were clearly dangerous. Splendid. Splendid. Caddy, get me another beer. I'm filing my nails. <gasps> all right, all right. Everybody wanted the new world. The trips to Mars, the knowledge of the human brain. All they lacked was the nerve to take the first big step. And that was what we supplied. Here's your beer. There was no time for slow and careful plotting. We couldn't afford to check and double check. We couldn't wait for the grudging approval of the professionals. We had to use fake stunts, tricks, anything to get over the big point. Once that was done, mankind was headed down the new road. It was easy to just heal the breach with the professionals and to make good in actuality what had been made good in pretense. <sighs> Very good. <clears throat> the beer. We built Maisie. We built the Mars rocket. We discovered the wisdom of the Martians. We sold the people on the science the professionals had been too high-toned to advertise or bring into the marketplace. But now that we'd succeeded, it's time to let accomplishment catch up with imagination, to implement fantasy with fact. You suppose I would have gone in with you if I hadn't known that someday we'd actually make what we claimed we had already made? Oh, 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 oh is that it? John, the day's come, and I'm the man. I've prepared myself. Caddy, clear the decks. All right, I know. You just want room to point that fat finger. I want her to stay. All right. George, look, every revolutionary wants to see the big change take place in his lifetime. But time for the second step. George, the average man's exactly where he was ten years ago when we took over. Except he's got a new god. More than ever, he thinks of Mars as a Hollywood paradise with wise men and yummy princesses. Like Caddy here. Do you think I'm yummy, really? Shut up. Maisie is, is mama, magnified a million times. The professional scientists, they're more jealous and stuffy than ever. All they like to do is turn the clock back to a genteel dream world of square caps and quadrangles. Bravo! I said shut up. George, maybe in 10,000 years we'll be ready for the second big step. Meanwhile, the clever will rule the stupid. The realists will rule the dreamers. George, did you actually think you could have bossed those professionals? Nuclear scientists, rocket physicists. Oh, now listen to me, boy. They'd have torn you to pieces in 20 minutes and glad of the chance. Georgia, baffle me. You know that Maisie and the Mars trips and all that are fakes, yet you believe in your somno learning and 
consciousness expansion and optimism pumping like a corn-fed yokel. There is a place for the man who has the courage to dream. Sure. In a straitjacket. Oh, George, you remind me of those men who used to put out those lower little magazines with Caddy's grandmother on the cover in outer space in a, in a stripped-down bathing suit. My grandmother never... I said shut up! That's what it is. Frustrated little men playing science god to generations of pimply high school chemistry students and gas station attendants, conning them into thinking they're in the know sprinkling a few formulas to the garbage and playing Atom Smasher, and then being very solemn about the role of imagination in science. Georges, the trouble with you is they forgot to take your zap gun and space cadet decoder pin away from you when you turned 13. <laughs> That's your honest opinion? It's more than that. Georges, get a hold of yourself and quit taking fantasy in the veins. That's an order. Jan, the strange part of it is that I know as well as you do that Maisie and the Mars trips are fakes, but some things aren't. The human mind, Jan, is a tool that hasn't been perfected yet. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio. Who's Horatio? This is the last full cackle, George. You've been fooling around with ESP, huh? Telepathy? Maybe a little hypnotism? Maybe. All right. Guess what I've got in my drawer? Extend your consciousness. Telepath it. Visualize it. Uh, never mind. I'll save you the mental effort. It's a pistol, see? Now, let me tell you something. I've got a couple of boys waiting outside. They'll take you by jet to New Mexico. George, congratulations. You're leaving for Mars tomorrow. Mars? Yes. I've decided Mars would be the best place for you. We'll arrange it so that your trip is, say, uh, two years long. Perhaps in that time, orbiting up there, you'll learn a little Martian wisdom. For example, the big liar must never fall for his own lie. Meanwhile, I got a replacement for you. His name is Willard Farquhar. But I sent for him to... Yes. You see, I too believe in cooperation with the scientists. But by subversion, I'll offer them the hand of friendship with a big fat bribe in it. You know what the bribe is? The power to destroy me. That's what I'm offering. Join us. Learn our secrets. Bore from within. Bide your time before you strike. But while he's biding, I'll have him. And when he's ready to strike, you'll find it's not quite the time. Wait a little bit. Enjoy the power. Play with fat old Jan Tregerin like a cat. And by then, I'll have him. You can't replace me, Jan. Oh, you were a good man, George. When we needed catchy slogans, ray guns, plastic helmets, uh, fancy sweaters. I warned you, Jan. Don't underestimate the mind. The human brain, even Caddy here, is a fascinating instrument. For example, I had a little talk with Caddy last week. Very boring. Ah, but useful. But when we were finished, her mind had something it didn't have before. You always were educational, George. Caddy, look at me. Hmm? Look at me. Look at me. Now, put your hand on his arm. Mm -hmm. Now, now, take his gun. Caddy, are you crazy? I've got his gun. What now? You see, Jan, there is a place for the dreamer, the man who believes, who can use his mind. I'm going to get rid of you, Jan, because the man who dares to dream will rule. Caddy, look at me. Look at me. Point the gun at him. Look at me. <laughs> I can't anymore. It's too ridiculous. <laughs> Jan, take your silly gun back. It's too heavy. What? Caddy. <laughs> Caddy, I command you, look at me. Look at me. <laughs> the power of the mind. Hey, boys, 
Come in and get him. I, I don't understand. I, Caddy, Caddy, look at me. Oh, all right, I'll look at you. <laughs> Poor Superman. <laughs> You have just heard X-1 presented by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Galaxy Science Fiction Magazine, which this month features You Go by E.C. Tubb, which proves that for pure chilling horror, nothing can beat cold hard facts. Galaxy Magazine on your newsstand today. Tonight by transcription, X-1 has brought you Appointment in Tomorrow. A story from the pages of Galaxy written by Fritz Leiber and adapted for radio by Ernest Kenoy. Featured in the cast were Ted Osborne, Dean Almquist, Pat Hosley, Bob Hastings, Arthur Hughes, and Charles Penman. Your narrator was Floyd Mack. This is Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. He who laughs, laughs longest or loudest, and so it is in Fritz Leiber's story, Appointment in Tomorrow, X-1, from November 7, 1956. Leiber taught briefly at Occidental College long enough to know that he didn't care for academic politics. When World War II broke out, he thought he could do more good fighting fascism, and he worked at Douglas Aircraft in quality inspection, but throughout the war... He continued to publish fiction. Next week, we'll have The Man Called X, Screen Director's Playhouse, Candy Matson, and other excursions in sound. I'm Norman Gilliland. Join me then, if you can, for Skywave Audio Theater. Welcome to Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. The six-shooter emphasized psychology and character over gunplay, but there were exceptions. One of them was the story about a hold-up shootout with a surviving witness. James Stewart, in the middle of his movie career, was Britt Ponsett, but particularly intriguing about the episode at hand is the participation of Gunsmoke's William Conrad as a sheriff and Parley Bear, a little moonlighting away from Gunsmoke. And exactly why, who knows, but occasionally both of them did turn up on other shows. You're going to get to hear Conrad distinguishing his sheriff from Matt Dillon, two different characters, in this broadcast from November 1st, 1953. It's The Six Shooter. In just a moment, you'll hear James Stewart as The Six Shooter just one of the many great stars brought to you Sundays on NBC. Every Sunday, hear Hume Cronin and Jessica Tandy in The Marriage, Sir Lawrence Olivier on Theater Royal, Lawrence Tibbet with the Golden Voices, Helen Hayes, Frederick March, Rex Harrison, and Lily Palmer on the NBC Star Playhouse. All of them heard only on NBC. James Stewart as the six-shooter.
The man in the saddle is angular and long-legged. His skin is sun-dyed brown. The gun in his holster is gray steel and rainbow mother of pearl. Its handle unmarked. People call them both the six-shooter. The NBC radio network presents James Stewart as the six-shooter, a transcribed series of radio dramas based on the life of Britt Ponset, the Texas plainsman who wandered through the western territories, leaving behind a trail of still-remembered legends. Now, in just a moment, immediately following this important announcement, you'll hear Act One of The Six Shooter. A lot of vacations start as a daydream and end as a daydream for lack of money. That need not happen to you. You can have extra money when you need it. Simply join the payroll savings plan for buying United States savings bonds. When your bonds mature, you'll get back $4 for every $3 you invest. And there's your extra money, your vacation, both guaranteed. Ask your employer about buying United States savings bonds through the payroll savings plan. Then join. Now, Act One of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart. had stopped, but the wind still carried slivers of moisture that cut into the boy's face as he rode along the edge of the creek. When he saw the yellow light from the back of the office, he pulled up and slid out of the saddle, then tied a wet bandana under his eyes and walked slowly, quietly to the door. All right, put him up over your heads. Reach. What's that? Way up, both of you. Stay away from that shotgun. Now, look here, young fella. You, get over to the safe. Better hurry it up, mister. Open it. I said open it. That's better. Now toss me that sack. Okay. Don't try to follow. Thanks a lot. Hey, see you. Dirty young. I'll show you. I'll show you. Oh. Rotten little. I hadn't figured on going through Clay City. It was an hour out of my way, and I was already a day late to the Jefferson Ranch where I'd signed up for the roundup, but Scar started limping from a loose shoe, and I didn't have much choice. So we had to head to the nearest blacksmith shop, so we turned north. losing a shoe here. Well, let's have a look. Raise it up, fella. Come on. Come on, boy. Yeah, that's split, mister. He needs a new one. Okay, boy. 
Can you take care of it, you think? Sure, sure. Bring him over here. Say, uh, what happened to Rad, fellow used to own this shop? Oh, he went to Nevada chasing silver. I bought him out a few months ago. Is that so? Ah. You know, you 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 don't look very much like a blacksmith. <laughs> <laughs> I'm stronger than I look. Heavier, too. Yes, sir. Well, what do you think I weigh, mister? Oh, I don't know. Hey, why don't you take a guess? Say, uh, 120? 30? Oh, well, not more than that, I wouldn't say. <laughs> you a betting man, mister? Sometimes, yeah. All right. I say I weigh over 130. And if I don't, you get the new shoe for nothing. But if I do, you pay me double. What do you say? Well, now, I've, uh, you got a set of scales? Eh? Don't need no scales. What do you say, mister? Is it a bet? Uh, don't seem to be no way of proving it, all. All you got to do is lift me up. You look like a man who can judge weight. What do you say? <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, it's a bet. All right, mister. Just heist me. If you don't think I weigh more than 130, the shoe is free. Come on, heist me up. Uh, I haven't ever tried to judge man's weight before, but... I'll... Well, here we go. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'll be done. Yes, sir. I'm packed solid, mister. Real solid. Well, you're packed tighter than a stair. You must weigh 150. You see? You see what I tell you? 158. Horseshoe's going to cost you money, mister. But you ain't the only one. Ever since I bought the shop, there ain't been a stranger come through Clay City but what he paid double for his first horseshoe. <laughs> You ain't sore, mister. Oh, no, I'm not. That's a fair bet. Sure, sure, yeah. sure it was. I told you I was heavier than I look. That's what folks call me, Heavy Norton. My real name's George, but everybody calls me Heavy. What's your name, mister? Ponsett, Brett Ponsett. Oh, they call a six-shooter? Well, doggone it, I've heard about you, mister. I sure heard about you. <laughs> well, I sure have. Would have recognized you, too, if I'd have noticed your gun. Sure, it's fancy, ain't it? Say, do you mind uh, showing it to me? No, no, no. Here, catch it. <laughs> oh, that's real fancy. Just like Sheriff Schofield said. And you know something? He says he's seen you fire six shots with it while Whitey Jackson was getting off his first bullet at that time down at Eagle. Now, well, the sheriff kind of likes to build up a story. You know? Well, he swears it's the truth. Well, uh, here's your gun, Mr. Potsett. Thanks. Sure. You was mighty quick in getting into Clay City. How'd you hear about it so fast? Hmm? Hear about what? Why, the holdup at the Fargo station last night. Ain't that why you come? Mm, no. No, I was heading past town and turned off because Scar got a loose shoe. Well, now, ain't that a coincidence? Fella holds up the Fargo office, kills one man, maybe two, gets away with $5,000... And 12 hours later, you ride into town. I got any idea who did it? No, sir, not a single solitary one from what I hear. Like I say, the deputy agent was dead when they found him. Other fellow, Fred Wilmer, a friend of his, got shot up pretty bad. Ain't done no talking yet. Doc says maybe he never will. I see. Well, does uh, Sheriff Schofield take out a posse? Nope, ain't nobody to go. Most of the men signed up for the Jefferson Roundup. Left town day before yesterday. Here's the Jefferson Ranch playing good money this year. Mm-hmm. You seen the sheriff this morning? No, not lately. He might be over to his office. You could try there. Yeah, I think I'll walk down there while you're fixing up Scar. Sure, Mr. Fawcett. Darn good idea. Sheriff Scofield will be real glad to see you. A couple of doors this side of the sheriff's office, I saw the Wells Fargo sign nailed up next to the window. 
place wasn't locked, so I went inside. One of the chairs was upset, and there were some damp stains on the floor. The cast-iron safe against the wall was standing wide open, so I kicked it shut. And then I went out in the back stoop. There was some more blood on the steps and then just red mud. Right at the edge, I saw the hoof prints. They trailed off the side of the creek, and whoever made them had headed west. I let one knee down into the mud and looked at the prints real close. The horse had been wearing one shoe different from the other three. Uh, A sharp rock must have cut into it somewhere or another. Not enough to split it, but just enough so that the print left a sort of a jagged line, like a fancy handwriting. You find something, Britt? Huh? Oh. Oh, hello, Sheriff. Oh, just heading out your way. Yeah, just so heavy. He told me he was in town. Did you find something? I don't know. I don't know. Did you see these hoop prints? Yeah. Well, uh, don't mean nothing. Trail gives out a mile or so down the creek at the fork. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The place said he had any other trouble lately, Ed? No, not a bit. I guess any town's got to expect to hold up once in a while. Well, I heard it was more than that. Yeah, that's right. Fred Wilmer able to talk yet? I'm afraid not. Doc said he'd let me know first time he come around. Took him out to his ranch on the other side of town. You've been out to see him since last night? There wasn't no reason. Uh, well, it might good be a good idea to be there just in case. I thought maybe I ought to stick in town. Uh, well, it don't look like anything more is going to happen here. I, why don't I... I'll get Scar and meet you out of Fred's place, huh? I can handle this alone, Britt. Well, sure, I was just offering to keep you company, Ed. I'll meet you there. <laughs> up, Mr. Ponsett. Tied him up around the side so he'd be in the shade. Well, thanks very much. Mighty fine horse you got there, too. Uh, you find Sheriff Schofield? I told him you was in town. Yeah, yeah I found him. Figure out anything? No, no, not so far. You will. Sheriff's a good man. You and him together, you'll get whoever done it. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, you're, you're the only blacksmith around here, aren't you, Abby? Yeah, only one for 40 miles, yes, sir. Did you ever see a horse with a shoe that's got one jagged edge? Left hind leg. A lot of shoes got jagged edges, Mr. Parkin. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I... Now, let's see here. Let's see, I'll, I'll try to show you what I mean. I'm, I'm not much of an artist, but it it, it looks something like this. Mm-hmm. It's... It's... It's yeah. it, it, like that. Yeah. Uh, seems to me I did see a shoe like that just the other day. Well, sure. I remember. Told me I ought to get a new one for it. Ben Schofield, that's who it was just the other day. Ben? That's right, Sheriff's kid. You know him, don't you, Mr. Ponson? Sure. Well, I haven't seen Ben for a couple of years, though. Well, but... sir, you wouldn't recognize him if you saw him now. That boy just sort of growed up overnight. Yeah. Yeah, I guess he has.
return to James Stewart as the six-shooter in just a moment. Here's a reminder about some of the wonderful entertainment that's yours for the listening each Wednesday evening on the NBC radio network. There's comedy for everyone when you set your dial to NBC for such programs as You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx and The Great Gildersleeve, starring Willard Waterman. The Great Gildersleeve provides 30 minutes of top-flight entertainment that your whole family will enjoy. Then, when it's time for Groucho Marx, watch out. Groucho throws a mean ad lib, and there's a barb at the end of every one of them. Listen and laugh as this marksman trades quips with his contestants from the studio audience. It's a riot of fun from top to bottom when Groucho Marx plays You Bet Your Life. Also on Wednesdays, listen to more quiz fun on Walk a Mile with your genial quiz master, Bill Cullen. That's Wednesday night on the NBC Radio Network. Be sure to listen. Now, Act Two of The Six Shooter, starring James Stewart as Britt Ponson. Wasn't much of a ride, and Sheriff Schofield was sitting on Fred Wilmer's porch swing when I got there. He told me Doc was inside with Fred, so I squatted down on the stoop and waited. About half an hour later, Doc came out told us we could go inside and see Fred. Fred was lying on a cot, breathing hard. The white cloth across his chest was stained pink, and his voice sounded like it was full of air. We was just sitting talking, Sam and me. Didn't hear the back door open. Must have left it unlocked. Turned around and there he was. Holding his gun on. <laughs> Did you get a look at him, Fred? Sure, but it didn't do much good. Handkerchief over his face. Couldn't see nothing. Just the gun. Told Sam to open the safe. Wasn't nothing else Sam could do. Sure. Took the money... Walked over to the door. Yeah. Looked at us for a minute and then fired. Didn't have no reason. Hit Sam in the face. Hit me in the chest and couldn't have no reason. Now, <laughs> yeah, take it easy, Fred. It's just like he enjoyed shooting at us. That's how it was. Like he enjoyed it. Maybe he was scared. He wasn't scared. He didn't have no reason. Now he killed us both. Started down the steps. I got my hand on the shotgun and I let him have it. You hit him? I don't know, maybe. He gave me Alan Rodo. You go out back after him? I couldn't go nowhere, Britt. What kind of a fellow was he? Young? Old? I couldn't see his face. He's a young fellow, I'd say, though. How young? Oh, 17, 18. He was full grown. You sure? He sounded young. He... Moved, young. Tall, short, medium. About the size of your kid, Ed. <laughs> About that size. <laughs> that enough for you, Ed? Yeah. Yeah, that's enough. You think you get him, Brent? Sure, Fred. Sure. Sure, we'll get him. Come on, Ed. Didn't have no reason to shoot. 
Let's go, Ed. We're wasting our time, Brett. He's got a day's head start. He'll be 40 miles from here. Not if he's shot up. Well, you go on if you want to. Well, you're the sheriff. You've got to make the arrest. You ain't never been so particular before. Maybe not. Maybe not. This time I am particular. You coming? I don't even know where to start. Well, I fought along the creek. Good place as any other. It's a waste of time, Brett. We picked up the trail along the creek and headed west. Wasn't hard to follow. Every once in a while, we'd see a few drops of blood spattered against the bushes. About ten minutes later, we came to the fork where Ed said the trail gave out. Scar stuck his nose down into the water, and I looked around... The trail didn't give out. It turned south. I nodded in that direction. Ed didn't say anything. He just followed. Then about five o'clock, we stopped to eat. Ed built a fire, and I opened up a couple of cans of beans I had in the roll. Oh, you're not hungry, Ed? I, it's early for supper. Too early. Yeah. Yeah. Ed, uh, I talked to Heavy before I went out to Fred's place. I, uh, I asked him who had a horse that would leave a mark like the one we've been following. So? He said that Ben did. Your son, Ben. I thought you ought to know that. A lot of horseshoes leave the same kind of mark. Fred said it was a young fellow. It wasn't Ben. Where is he, Ed? He's the Jefferson Ranch. He's working on a roundup. He left Clay City day before yesterday. He couldn't have been Ben. There's a lot of wild youngsters in these parts, but Ben's a good boy. He couldn't be him. You sure? That mark don't mean nothing. Plenty of horseshoes leave the same kind of mark. You know that, Britt. You got enough to eat? Yeah. All right, let's go. The moon came out, thin, yellow. Not real bright, but enough so we could follow the trail. For about three miles, there wasn't any blood sign. He must have wrapped something around the wound, wrapped it real tight, and then, then we found the bandage. Piece of shirt tail sopped through. For the next mile, he'd been bleeding a lot, much worse than before. He was hurt pretty bad, Ed. Yeah, looks like it. He couldn't have gone much further, could he? Hold up, Scar. Ed. Yeah? Pull up. Pull over here. Look. Over there in the gully, that cabin. Yeah. Whose is it? I used to belong to Jake Levant. He died a couple of years ago. Ain't nobody living there now. There's somebody living there. What? Out back. There's a pony. We'd better go on on foot. Britt? Yeah? We're gonna take him alive, ain't we? 
If we can. We've got to take him alive, Britt. It's Ben, isn't it? I... I don't know. Not for sure. It could be Ben? It could be. Where's he been the last couple of days? I don't know that either. I had an argument with him two nights ago. He... He needed some money. He'd been playing poker. He lost a lot. Now, the $5,000 that was taken out of that safe is a lot. I wouldn't give him none. He, he got mad. He said he'd get it. Said he'd get it himself. And I, I hit him. I hit him hard across the face. Hit him twice. He started to hit me back, and then he walked out of the house, and I ain't seen him since. I wish he had hit me back. Now, we've got to get across this clearing, Ed. Over to that clump of trees. They may see us. We'll have to take that chance. You ready? Yeah. You all right? Yeah, sure. We'll stay in these trees for a couple of minutes. Okay. And then we'll rush him. It's not going to be easy to take him in now that he's spotted us. Red, you ain't going to kill him. I'm not going to let him kill me. It ain't his fault, Brett. It's mine. You know that's not so. No, it's the truth. It's my fault. I broke him. I broke him like you break a wild horse. Tried to take all the fight out of him fast. You know what happens when you do that to a horse? He gets tame, but the fight's still there, and someday he turns wild again. He ain't really broke at all. I'm, I'm going to rush him alone, Ned. No, stay here. Sam Norton's dead. Maybe Fred Wilmer, too, by now. Killing Ben won't bring him back. He's my son. I'm Fred. sorry, Ed. No, we're going back to town. Not without him. We're going back. Now, you can outdraw me, Britt, but I'll still have time to get a shot off. I'll try to get him alive, Ed. I'll try. No, don't turn your back on me, Britt. Don't be fooled. Don't make me do it, Britt. I knew... He wouldn't shoot. I wasn't being brave, but I knew he wouldn't shoot. A man like Ed Schofield just don't change overnight. You can figure a man like Ed. But I hadn't figured on what happened next. Ben! It's me, Ben! You're dead! Can you hear me, Ben? Brett Ponson's coming after you! Throw out your gun, Ben! Brett Ponson's coming! <laughs> I saw him go down real slow, like his legs had buckled under him. I pushed myself past a couple of rocks and edged over toward the back door. The kid was in the kitchen. I couldn't see him, but I could hear him moving around, going from window to window, looking out, waiting for me. I slid past another rock. I could run for the door now or wait. The kid made up my mind for me. He knew right where I was. I took out my gun and waited. I knew he'd get nervous first. Young fellas always do. I wasn't so young. I could wait. It was more than five minutes before the door started to open. His pony knew he was coming, too. He started for his horse. I aimed at his leg. For a second, he just stopped moving, just hung there in midair like a hawk. And then he sprawled forward out of sight behind a log. Everything was quiet now. Even his pony. And then the moon went behind a thick cloud. And I came around the corner of the cabin. And then suddenly the moon came out again, and just in time for me to see his forty-five coming up over the top of the log. 
revolver slipped out of his fingers, and I saw him try to reach for it. But he couldn't make it. I stood up, and I walked over to the log. I turned him over with my foot, and I looked at his face. the most extravagant vacation imaginable. Then picture yourself going on that vacation. Sounds like a daydream? Well, it isn't. It's completely possible. But it does take a bit of planning, such as the regular purchase of United States savings bonds. Now, the best way to do that is through the payroll savings plan. That's the best way because it's the sure way to buy your savings bonds regularly. The payroll savings plan works like a charm because it's completely automatic. Your employer does everything for you. It's especially easy on you because money is saved from your paychecks before you have a chance to miss it. And when those bonds mature, you can pack your bags for that extravagant vacation. Because United States savings bonds pay back $4 for every $3 you put in. Join the payroll savings plan where you work. That's the way to save money regularly. Earn extra money regularly through United States savings bonds. The Six Shooter is an NBC Radio Network production in association with Review Productions. 
It is based on a character created by Frank Burt, and the transcribed story is written by him. Mr. Stewart may currently be seen in the Universal International picture Thunder Bay. Others in the cast were Parley Bear, Jimmy McCallion, Herb Bygren, and Bill Conrad. Special music for this program was by Basil Adlam, and the entire production is under the direction of Jack Johnstone. All characters and incidents were fictitious, and any resemblance to actual characters or incidents is purely coincidental. Hal Gibney speaking. Hear exciting stroke of fate tonight on the NBC radio network. Story about a sheriff having to pursue a wayward son, and it did give William Conrad a way to distinguish his character from that of Matt Dillon, a little less secure, the name of the piece, Ben Schofield, The Sixth Shooter, from November 1st, 1953, starring James Stewart. And the episode had some psychology as well as gunplay. You also got a surprise ending. Up next, it's The Fred Allen Show. This is Skywave Audio Theater. <laughs>